The Denver Planning Board reviews and makes recommendations to the Mayor and Denver City Council on rezoning requests, district design standards, and other land use rules. This meeting of the Denver Planning Board begins now. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to call the meeting of the Denver Planning Board for March 1st, 2023 to order. We'll start with the uh, roll call. Uh, Rachel? Here. Mary Beth? Here. Gary? Here. Fred? Here. Gosha? Here. Caitlin? Here. I'm Joel. I'm here as well. We have seven members present and we do have a quorum. We reserve time at the beginning of every, every planning board meeting for public comment on any topic that is not otherwise on the planning board agenda. Uh, if anyone is in attendance, either in the room or online, uh, to give comment to something that is not otherwise on the agenda, uh, could you let us know? Online, you can use the raise hand feature. I'll just take a little here. Everyone seems to be here for something that is on the agenda. All right, we will move on to uh, meeting records for approval. We have no meeting records for approval. Moving on to the regular agenda, uh, I just want to note that item eight on the agenda, a rezoning of 1700 North Marion Street has been withdrawn. Uh, so this was posted uh, in the agenda when the agenda was posted. There's no action that we need to take. Uh, if you're interested in 1700 North Marion Street, be aware that that item will not be discussed today. We have one item on the consent agenda, official map amendment application 2022I-00231, rezoning of 1089 South Ogden Street from USUV to USUV1. Uh, this has been proposed for the consent agenda because uh, it meets our consent agenda criteria. 
However, we will remove it from the consent agenda uh, if any planning board member wishes to have it removed or if anybody has shown up to speak on this item. Now, we did have somebody register in advance, Tina Bagatana, I'm very sorry, I'm not great with, this, with names. Is Tina here online or in person? If, yeah, Tina, we see you online. Uh, we're gonna ask you to unmute and just clarify that you want to give testimony on this rezoning. Yes, please. I okay, did send a letter of opposition and I would just like to, to listen to the hearing and then also add a few additional comments. Absolutely, okay. We will, we will keep you here and we will uh, remove this from the consent agenda. I'd like to invite Brandon Shaver to give an abbreviated staff report. Um, yes, uh, you see the screen now. Which the ADU has proven to be in this 
staff also finds these difficult to criteria related to uniformity of issues and furthering public health safety. The adoption of COP Plan 2040 and Blueprint Denver's participant circumstance, they specifically recommend this to diversify housing choice for the expansion of ADU and all residential areas. Lastly, the program design is consistent with the urban neighborhood context, the surrounding area, and with the pavements. Thank you. Uh, the applicant is Catherine, Catherine Weaver. Uh, we can see if we can get Catherine up and ask you have up to six minutes to tell us about your application. Hi, can you hear me? This is Catherine. Yes, we can. If you just start with your name and address for the record, you'll have up to six minutes and we'll put a timer on the screen when you're getting close to the end of your time. Okay, I think you said my state, my full name. So Catherine Sandin Weaver, and then my address 1089 South Ogden Street. Um, we did start this application. My husband and I purchased this home in August of 2022. Um, it is an older home, single family home, which we wanted because we want to start a family in this neighborhood. I'm actually currently pregnant um, and all of our family is resides in Florida, Alabama, that being my parents, grandparents and my husband's parents and grandparents. Um, so when we bought the house, we were aware that the garage needed to be torn down. Um, it's not in good shape. Um, and so we, since this, this, our house is small, we don't have very many bedrooms and with the growing family, especially with our family being living in Florida, we wanted to put an ADU on top of the garage when we do rebuild the garage. Um, this is kind of the most um, sound financial option for us now, just since we don't have the funds to, you know, remodel, pop the top or rebuild um, the single family house. So um, our intent was to use the ADU for our families to come stay in um, and help with the baby. And as they get older, just make sure that they can be close to us when they are in the state. Okay, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, planning board will be reviewing this based on the uh, five criteria that are on the screen. I do, do want to note that we have received some letters. So planning board has been forwarded all of the letters. And one of them is from our next speaker. Uh, and, and Tina, please help me with your name. T Tina Magnagana. Um, it's very close. It, Maganya, kind of like, like lasagna. Okay. <laughs> Well, welcome. Um, you will have three minutes, and uh, just please start with your name and address for the record. Okay, my name is Tina Magana. I currently reside at 1101 South Ogden Street, so I'm just a couple homes away from the Weavers. Um, I just want to say thank you for giving me this moment to speak. I, I did submit a letter of opposition, but there were a couple of other things that I would like to add that um, first of which being a written notice was placed outside the property 
and note cards were mailed out to surrounding property owners. So presently I'm aware of at least four letters of opposition and only one letter of support, which came from an entity that doesn't reside in West Washington Park. So I'm asking you to please listen to the neighbors and respect the concerns of those that live here and who would be directly impacted by this zoning decision. ADUs in this neighborhood do not assist in creating affordable housing. Instead, they assist to subsidize construction of million plus dollar homes. For example, around us, monthly rental for an 800 square foot bedroom, one, one bedroom, one bath, goes for $1,700 to $2,000 a month. That's far from the affordable housing plan that is proposed or that Denver is shooting for. And while I'm in favor of additions and improvements that the zoning currently allows, and I even love the idea of multi-generational families in the same dwelling, in those homes, there's familiar ownership and shared property responsibilities. And that would not necessarily be the case with an existing ADU or would not be the case with ADUs as while the, the um, person who's applying for the application says it's for family, we don't know where that will lead down the road. Perhaps they decide their home is too small and they wanna sell and buy something bigger. The next person may come in and decide they wanna rent this ADU. So current zoning does not allow for ADUs in West Washington Park. And a move like this should really be addressed neighborhood-wide versus a one-off decision. I believe granting a variance for this ADU would set a bad precedence and change the character of our neighborhood. Therefore, I'm respectfully requesting the denial of this application. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, is there anyone else who's come to speak to this item? If you're online, please use the raise hand feature and I'll take a look in the room. Not seeing anyone in the room. I briefly saw somebody else with their hand up on Zoom. I don't see that person anymore. So we will move to um, questions. Oh. Yeah, Catherine Weaver was the applicant, so this uh, spoken. All right, so we'll now move to questions from the planning board to staff or uh, the applicant or our public speaker. Okay, seeing no questions, I will close the public hearing ask for deliberations. Go um, so I agree with our speaker. Thank you for coming to talk to us. I agree that the ADUs should be implemented neighborhood-wide or city-wide. That's what our cities, city plans call for. But uh, meanwhile, while um, they are not implemented neighborhood-wide or city-wide, um, they are part of the plan. So I believe the application meets the criteria and I'll be supporting it. Yeah, I, that was one of the points that I wanted to make. I, I, I think it's important to note that this isn't a variance. Uh, this process is not giving some kind of variance. This is a map amendment based on the criteria within the city. And I think there was another letter that spoke to the criteria for a variance. I just think it's worth noting that that, that is not this process. Um, and I, I also, I just, I, this is something I've said before, but I think it's important to state. I, 
I take particular issue with the assertion that somehow people who rent property are less deserving of housing in a given neighborhood than another. Um, I, I find that a very disturbing assertion. Um, and I, I guess I can leave it at that, but that to me is, speaks about classism. It harkens back to some issues about who in our society was able to purchase property, who had access to capital and to mortgages to purchase property. And it's a road that I would hope we as a nation are moving well on down from. And so when I hear that, it, yeah, I find it very disturbing. Anyway, I, I do believe that this meets the criteria very clearly and will be supporting. Thank you. I'll just uh, make a comment. I, I too believe this meets the criteria. Um, the, the public process for deciding whether we should allow ADUs citywide was part of a multi-year effort called Denver Right, uh, during which we updated Grid Denver that, that concluded in 2019. And then as, as the staff presentation uh, summarized, in Blueprint Denver, it says ADUs should be allowed citywide, uh, preferably, as Gosha said, by a citywide rezoning or neighborhoods at a time. But uh, in the interim, uh, individual rezonings to support ADUs are supported. It's, it's, a, it's a clear uh, line. And, and oftentimes, plans have soft general guidance about the direction, in this case, regarding ADUs. It has quite specific um, guidance. So. Um, I certainly agree that public input is important, and on, on this topic, that public input uh, occurred during the, the Denverite multi-year planning process. Uh, I do think, think this meets the criteria, but someone like to make a motion. I'll move. Um, I move to recommend that City Council approve application 2022I-00231, rezoning 1089 South Ogden Street from UN. USUV to USUV1, finding that the applicable review criteria have been met. Mary Beth, and seconded by Rachel. Any discussion on the motion? So we'll call vote. Rachel? Aye. Mary Beth? Aye. Mary? Aye. Fred? Aye. Gosha? Aye. Caitlin? Aye. I vote aye as well. That passes unanimously. Thank you. We are on to item five on the agenda. This is uh, official map amendment application 2022I-00131, zoning of 640 West Tennessee Avenue, IA-202 overlay to IMX5. This is a public hearing. The public hearing is open. And Andrew Hill will be filling in for the staff report. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Andrew Webb here. I'm filling in today for my colleague, Edson Ibanez. Uh, to present the staff report on this proposed rezoning of 640 West Tennessee Avenue from IAU02 to IMX5. This uh, proposed rezoning is in Council District 7. It's in the Atmar Park neighborhood. Um, as you can see, uh, is uh, located here just south of uh, Vanderbilt Park and is currently uh, used for as an industrial facility. Uh, the proposal was to allow uh, an industrial uh, mixed-use district uh, that could allow uh, potentially uh, adaptive reuse of the site with residential uses. 
The uh, current zoning, as I mentioned, is IA202. Uh, IA is the uh, light industrial zone district in the Denver zoning code, and the U02 is the billboard overlay. These uh, photographs show some uh, uh, photographs of the site itself there at the uh, top left, and then uh, another view of the subject property uh, looking east there at the bottom left. And you can see here some photographs of the surrounding uh, environs, including the park to the north uh, and the uh, property just to the west of the subject site. The uh, informational notice for this, excuse me, for this rezoning was sent out uh, uh, in November, or, I'm sorry, uh, September. Uh, we sent a planning board notice out uh, in February, uh, and here we are at the planning board hearing uh, in March. Uh, we're expecting this to head to city council in April. Uh, as of the time of the uh, creation of this PowerPoint, we did not have, uh, we had not received any public comment. However, since uh, uh, the, this presentation was uh, was prepared, uh, we have received two letters of support, which were sent uh, today to the planning board. As you're aware, to uh, recommend a, a approval of a rezoning, the board must find that a proposed rezoning meets these five criterion, criteria in the zoning code. Uh, with regard to the first criterion, consistency with adopted plans, there are three plans that impact this site, Comprehensive Plan 2040, Blueprint Denver, and the I-25 and Broadway Station Area Plan. This uh, proposed rezoning would uh, both, uh, advance several uh, recommendations and policies in the Comprehensive Plan, including uh, increasing the development of housing close to transit. Uh, this is close to a major uh, RTD bus and light rail station. Uh, creating and creating a greater mix of uh, housing options in the neighborhood that all the applicants would be supportive. Uh, Blueprint Denver identifies this area as a, uh, a district, uh, as a future uh, neighborhood context. And uh, with a future place type of innovation flex. So this is a, a future place type that uh, allows for some uh, manufacturing and uh, technology and innovation uses, uh, but where multi-unit uh, residential uses are also compatible and the uh, proposed IMX industrial mixed use zoning allows uh, both of those types of uses. It is within the all other areas of the city, uh, 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 area within the Blueprint Denver's growth strategy, uh, where we expect a lower amount of employment and uh, housing compared to some of their urban center Uh, this is also consistent with this policy uh, in uh, Blueprint, uh, specific to the Innovation Flex Districts, uh, enabling uh, and recommending the addition of housing uses to complement existing uh, manufacturing uses, creating more of a, of a presence on the street. The I-25 and Broadway Station Area Plan uh, identifies this area for future use of industrial mixed use, which again is consistent with the proposed IMX zone district. Uh, you can see the site down there in the uh, uh, southwest corner of the I-25 above station and boundary. It also recommends a maximum building height in this area of five stories. Uh, and the, uh, that plan goes on to recommend continuing to support the industrial and mixed uses in these locations. Uh, but to allow for the influx of some residential uses, especially in this area, to help activate uh, the proposed park. This uh, proposed 
uh, map amendment will result in the uniform application of the IMX zone district uh, at this site as it would any other site of that zone district. It furthers public health, safety, and welfare uh, by uh, implementing our adopted plans. And uh, it is justified by several uh, justifying circumstances, including changed or changing conditions in the area that have been significant uh, recent development uh, in the I-25 and Broadway Station area, uh, and because of the adoption of and it uh, is consistent with the uh, neighborhood context zone district purpose and intent for the I uh, MX zone district as for the Uh, so with that, CPD recommends approval based on a finding that all review criteria have been met. And I'm happy to turn it Thank you. I see that Todd Snyder is the applicant. Uh, is is here? Uh, does Todd have applicant presentation? I I uh, I don't know if you're going to have a presentation. Okay. Available for questions. Thank you very much. Uh, we don't have anyone who's pre-signed up to speak to this item. If there's anyone online uh, who's come to speak, could you use the raise hand feature? Is anyone here who's come to speak? All right, I'm not seeing anyone from the public who uh, want to give testimony on this or move to questions from the board. Uh, is there one? Is this for the 1085 level? Uh, we're on 640 West Tennessee Avenue. Okay, sorry. All right, no problem. Stay online. Oh, let's say 1085. That is next. That's the next item. So just stay with us. All right. Uh, I see no one from the public who's here to speak on this item, 640 West Tennessee Avenue. So we'll questions for to uh, staff for the applicant. Right. One quick question, Andrew. Um, you know, the, when we look at the purpose of IA uh, districts, it talks about how no new residential use may be established in the IA zone district in order to promote a stable employment base for the city. Obviously, there's very specific plan guidance for this one, for this specific location. Is this something that is weighing into broader conversations that staff are having about these about conversion from an IA or an IB to an IMX? Uh, yes. Uh, one thing I should have also mentioned is that uh, you're probably familiar with the manufacturing preservation area boundaries that we have uh, highlighted in the city. And where a property is in one of those manufacturing preservation areas and is identified with a future place type of value manufacturing, those are the areas where Blueprint uh, recommends not allowing the, the uh, uh, introduction of residential uses. But in these areas that have been identified for uh, for innovation flex as a as a future place type, uh, residential uses are uh, identified as appropriate by Blueprint. And certainly, I think you know as part of um, uh, upcoming, uh, you know, taking us another look at Blueprint and, and and doing updates now several years on, uh, we certainly will revisit the, the, those policies and, and work with our uh, Department of Economic Development and Opportunity to. Uh, to understand uh, better how that policy has worked so far and, and how we should approach the introduction of residential uses into industrial areas in the future. Great, thank you. Any other questions for staff or the applicant? Seeing no other questions, I'll close the public hearing and ask for deliberation. 
Yes, Caitlin. Um, I'll be voting for it, and I just call out from a criteria standpoint. I found that justifying circumstances um, for compliance with existing plans is particularly compelling in this instance with the I 25 and Broadway scenario plan. And, um, it really had a clearly focused intent around this area and the station area to bring um, additional density, some residential, and um, see that station area um, continue to get people to have transition. So um, I'll be voting in support. Yeah, I also will be in voting in support of this, and I, I think there's a couple of things that are important here. One is that proximity to the park, and also this, I think, citywide reassessment of what our river can be. Um, you know, it, it is where, historically, we located the worst and dirtiest uses in the city, and this transformation as an idea is pretty interesting. One of the things that I think is important about this site is the proximity of a mobile home park to it. And I'm pretty glad that we have the, at least the pause that's happened for those as we go into this. And that we'll be presumably looking at in the future at how those, how that naturally occurring affordable housing is preserved. Because I, I looked at this and thought, well, well boy, if we didn't have that, for the next application, Rezone that that part and displace those people. So I think that's that's important work that I look forward to seeing more about in the next in the coming years. Thank you. Sure. Well, I just had a question. I agree with Caitlin. I think this fits the criteria really clearly. Um, just from a process perspective, what precluded this from being a That was sort of a staff recommendation. Uh, sure. Uh, I, I think, uh, to be uh, perfectly honest, I think it probably could have. Um, uh, but because it is a somewhat unique, it is within an area that we're, that is uh, uh, designated as a manufacturing preservation area that has that innovation flex future place type, which is somewhat unique where we see rezonings in this area, uh, we decided it was merited uh, uh, a, a hearing. Seeing no other comments and deliberation, would someone like to make a motion? I'll be happy to. <clears throat> I move to recommend that City Council approve application 2022-I-00131, rezoning 640 West Tennessee Avenue from IAU02 to IMX5, finding that the applicable review criteria have been met. Fred and seconded by Barry. Any discussion on the motion? Any roll call vote? Rachel? Aye. Mary Beth? Aye. Barry? Aye. Fred? Aye. Gosh? Aye. Caitlin? Aye. Vote aye as well. That motion passes unanimously. Thank you. We're on to item six on the agenda official map amendment application 2022I 00146, rezoning at 1085 North Bowl Boulevard from the SUD1X to RH215. This is a public hearing. The public hearing is over. And then we have a staff report to present today. The staff report is from Fran Indigo.
afternoon, members of the planning board. Uh, my name is Stephanie Kidd, Food Planning Services. And today I'm going to present an overview of the map amendment for Kitty Pike Road Unit. So let's go ahead and start with what is the request. It's an applicant driven application requesting to change the zoning classification for 1085 B1S21X, which is a single unit residential district. URH 2.5, that is a multi-unit residential district. URH 2.5 allows for the urban house with attached accessory dwelling building unit, building form, duplexes, tandem houses, and the row house building. Subject property is located in Council District 3 in the Villa Park neighborhood. The site is located at the corner of Lowell Boulevard and Grove Avenue. The Lake Drywall Gulch Park is not the property running east-west. Michael Sanchez Park is 500 feet northeast from the southern side. The property is within the quarter-mile buffer of the North Street IPD Light Rail Station. As mentioned before, the property is currently in the urban edge single-unit D1X district, which in this location would allow for this urban house, urban house, and the attached to growing unit building court. In a minimum zone of size of 6,000 square feet. As you can see on the map, the property is surrounded to the south and west by properties also zoned GSUD 1X, to the east by GSUD 1, to the north by open space where the gold is. Current land use of the site is single unit residential, which is, it is mostly surrounded by other single unit residential uses, and you can see a park panel. Shows the subject property is located in a residential area very close to the North Street RPD station and gives an idea of the residential character of the area. In the top right image, you can see the subject property, and in the bottom right image, which is looking west on the rural border, you can see the character of the area. Well, let's take a quick look at the process. Informational notice of the application was sent on December 19, 2022. Planning board notice was sent out on February 13th. And currently, we have city planning qualification tentatively set for May 15th. Today, staff has received one letter of support from Stone Denver and two letters of opposition from concerned neighbors. Both letters of opposition express concerns with the voluntary displacement and rectification as resulting in this. Let's go on to review criteria. For resigning to be recommended for approval by planning board, it must be found that the requested map amendment is consistent with five review criteria. Our role as staff planners is to evaluate the request system, in this case, the URH 2.5 against this criteria. The first criteria is consistency with adopted plans. There are four plans applicable to this result. We have comprehensive plan 2040, we have the Blue Denver, the Villa Park neighborhood plan, and the West Bowman plan. After we review these four plans, we'll take a quick look at the draft for the West Area Plan that currently is not an approved plan, but it was recommended for approval by planning board a couple weeks ago. Let's start with Comprehensive Plan 2040. Stated in the staff report, the rezoning is consistent with several goals of Comprehensive Plan 2040. This map amendment will promote equity by creating greater mix of housing options in every neighborhood, which will lead to an environmental resilient benefit by promoting development for infrastructure and services are recognized. Number of 
the subject property is not as part of the urban neighborhood context in the standard, and that's why the applicant request is to be shown to urban context instead of urban edge context. The place map designates the subject site as part of the high medium place type. These place types have a mix of mean scale multi unit residential buildings, usually mixed with a variety of lower scale residential building types. The most large 2.5 service allows multiple building parts up to 2.5 stories in height, which is compatible with different place types. The growth area in Pippin Denver is all other areas of the city. This area translated to see a 10% employment growth. 20% housing growth and Here that the subject site is within one of Denver's neighborhood equity and stabilization. Focus neighborhoods and equity analysis was included in the staff report and was shared with the applicant for consideration. Within Denver contains three equity concepts that help guide change to benefit everyone. Each equity concept has associated measurements that help inform implementation actions. Subject property is in Villa Park, which is identified as an area with less access to opportunity compared to the rest of the city. The subject area is less equitable than Denver as a whole when it, compared, when it comes to access to pressure costs and healthcare. These scores are related to a higher than average percentage of children with obesity and poverty below. While the proposed allowance of a multi unit residential district does not directly increase access to opportunity, and increasing residents might increase the likelihood. That more goods, services, and amenities will rotate in the commercial and mixed use zone areas. Additionally, the proposal district would allow additional housing units at a location that is well served by trust, providing residents with additional access to daily needs. Subject property is an area that has high vulnerability in areas. Subject areas are as vulnerable to especially two-dimensional areas: occasional attainment and median household, household income. This proposed rezoning would allow for additional residential units in the city, which can help provide housing for existing residents and contribute to meeting the city-wide demand for housing. The subject property is an area that has no housing diversity. The subject area is not diverse in terms of the percentage of owners and renters, number of income restricted units, and housing costs. Adding this middle, housing is a strategy to add needed housing diversity. The neighborhood lacks smaller scale multi unit development compared to the rest of the city and does not offer a diversity of housing costs when compared to the The proposed zoning will help diversify the housing stock and cater to a mix of residential development types available. Now let's take a look at the Villa Park neighborhood plan from 1991. I will quickly note here that the draft west area plan is intended to supersede the Villa Park neighborhood plan and the West Park. However, given the timing of this application, the relevant plan guidance is addressed in the staff report, and that means that we will be reviewing these documents. The proposal district allows development that is similar in scale to the existing pattern while allowing additional density and investment along the, the light rail line, which was developed after adopting the adoption of the art plan. UH 2.5 some district. Is a district that both inspects the character of the existing neighborhood in terms of building height and residential dimensions type, and it allows for a reasonable increase in density in the location of the property in close proximity to the North Street Light Rail Station. Now, looking at the West Coast plan, this plan was approved by City Council in 2006. 
in the future land use concept map, the properties are identified as urban neighborhood stages, which is described as single family and multifamily residential with a typical scale of one to five students. The urban neighborhood station land use development patterns occur within a quarter to a half mile radius of the light rail station. Since the stations evolve to establish residential areas, mutual changes might add density and intensity and compatibility points and blend in with the prevailing residential context. The box zoning for the subject site where it's to be five will increase the range of residential housing types and will control the scale. Development to the same scale of the surrounding residential development is consistent with the Western Compact. Now, let's take a quick look at the West Area Plan Draft. This area plan is currently planned for adoption at the end of the month as part of the Community Planning and Development's Neighborhood Planning Initiative, and it will supersede the Villa Park Neighborhood Plan and the West Compact. We also update the guidance of the community. The West Area Plan Draft. The subject property is within the urban neighborhood context and the future basement is classified as low key residential, which is described as means of low to meets means of low to meet scale multi-unit residential buildings from small scale multi-unit buildings are dispersed among single multi-unit residential buildings. The proposed storage to bring five allows for multiple residential buildings to meet once up to two and a half stories in height. Therefore, it's consistent with the direction given in the West Area Plan. Moving on to criteria two and three, staff also finds that the requested, the requested rezoning meets the next two criteria. The rezoning will result in the uniformity of the regulations, leading further on for safety and welfare, primarily for implementation of adopted land use plans. The proposed rezoning would also facilitate increased housing density near services and amenities and promote walkable urban neighborhoods within walkable distance to the valleys. The application identifies the changing conditions north of the property along the west corridor light rail line as a justifying circumstance. There has been increasing redevelopment in the Villa Park and West Colfax neighborhoods as significant investment in infrastructure has occurred around the north side of the light rail increase in the intensity of land use in the areas has created additional need for higher intensity residential uses like those allowed in the new age to be defined in the Also, as discussed before, the presenter not decide as high medium consistent with the proposed new age to be Therefore, the proposed map amendment is justified in order to recognize the change in changing conditions of the land. Lastly, the proposed rezoning is consistent with the urban neighborhood context, row house to modify some purpose and plans. Staff does recommend that planning board recommend approval of the proposed rezoning based on all the different Thank you. Thank you. Welcome up. Uh, looks like there might be multiple, multiple of you. You're all welcome to speak. Uh, the applicant team will have six minutes combined. Anyone who speaks, please start with the name and address for the record, and then we'll be keeping time. My address is 2640 Street, and I'm the applicant, not the owner. Um, I don't have a special model of six minutes plan. She did a great job uh, identifying the best of which she mentioned was medium high for the different footprints in our research and information to the councilwoman. Uh, Jamie Flores, 
it seems as if we really needed a push in the direction of the West Area Plan that we just got some feedback back in the last year. Um, so that moving forward, as Brian mentioned, is a low income. In this case, that for us with community single family duplex, uh, a row home building. So with the row home 2.5, uh, that's kind of the direction we're going in. Uh, with that West Area Plan, I think that it's wise to speak to it. Um, along with those, and what we've heard from Jamie is portability and parking are their main key factors on the south side of this course. The north is a little bit different, and I, I think we've seen a lot of response from what's happened on the north side of our porch. And so, how we feel this particular lot at 285 a really good precedent lot would be that West Area Plan is passed, and that intends to submit this area. Of which uh, for portability, uh, for instance, and I know the nuance of building we're proposing might not be considered in this criteria uh, at this time, but just so everyone knows, we're moving forward with an eight unit building almost just under 10,000 square foot lot, one to one parking ratio. Uh, you know, we could possibly have the parking reductions going to rail, the rail stop is just a piece of less energy. Um, so, our intention with portability is all of these units, the largest unit is 1,000. Smaller than it's about 600. So we're trying to hit that median income, uh, median income or lower for that area. I think, in regards, we did receive two letters of opposition, um, of which didn't necessarily speak to the nuances of, of building and what they might want to see in the neighborhood. But um, so I'm not going to that. But I can assure we're taking some more, um, let's call them fun approaches into regards to in a single family neighborhood. What beckons it uh, in regards to the sense of community? We saw a lot of front porches, and so those kind of harness communication. So we're going to offer those um, parking, as we mentioned in the. Okay, we have six people who signed up in advance to speak. I'll read those names so that you know if you're on the list, and then anyone who wants to speak who uh, doesn't get called will call after these first six. The names I have are Kathy Sandoval. Jamie Aguilar, Amy Contreras, Laura Isanek, Eric Einstein, and Alan Chappell. So we'll call folks in that order, starting with Kathy Sandoval. See you there, Kathy. You should be able to help. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello? Yes, hi. If you start with your name and address. Hello, this is Kathy Sandoval. Can you hear me? Are we on mute? No. I can't, I Kathy, I can you hear us? Kathy, we can hear you. Hello? We, we can hear you. We can hear you just fine. I need my audio. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you fine. I guess not. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, it sounds like you're gonna you're going to adjust your audio. Hi, Kathy, can you hear us? Yes, I guess there was some problem with my headphones. Thanks for your patience. All right, if you'd start with your name and address for the record, you'll have three minutes. Yes, my name is Kathy Sandoval. Uh, Brown Chicana, she, her, hers, Aya, 
uh, resident of Villa Park neighborhood, as well as I was a member on the steering committee for the West Area Planning Initiative. So after listening to some comments from the planning board and the presentation of the CBD staff, what uh, struck me, it was a little bit of a disconnect on this rezoning. So on the one hand, staff states that the neighborhood lacks housing diversity, yet on the other hand, they state the area is changing. So what this analysis doesn't seem to mention is uh, that over half of the neighborhood has multi-unit housing already and has a high degree of mixed housing types. So this type of rezoning continues the loss in my mind of anti-displacement strategies for residents with example of the West Denver Renaissance Collaborative, the single family plus program where you stay in place program that was intended to uh, help in the administrative rezoning that was done last year to support affordable homeownership strategies and to build at intergenerational health and wealth. So this area, like I said, was rezoned administratively last year to support accessory dwelling units. And this area is becoming a smaller and smaller area of housing stability. And I think we saw in that equity analysis that shows the vulnerability of displacement. And last night in Villa Park, parents were at Eagleton Elementary School trying to get together and fight to keep their school open. So as we stated in our comments with the West Area Plan, planning for equity is paramount. And this type of housing is not stabilizing our neighborhood. It is continuing that legacy of redlining with disparities impacting current residents by displacing them and reducing opportunities for affordable housing. I'd like you to look at the big picture where our schools are being sliced and diced for closures. The numbers of families are reduced with U-RH two and a half. This development in reality will have eight units with maybe eight to 16 adults with one bedroom and office or maybe two bedrooms and only three garages and five parking stalls with inaccessible stairs for people that have disabilities with three floors versus the site with families and children that the existing uh, zoning would allow. So this proposal in my mind does not meet the criteria of justifying circumstances with the displacement of residents and the loss of home ownership and a neighborhood is already has small scale multi-unit development. This project does not further the public health, safety and general welfare of this neighborhood because it's not creating affordable housing and it's creating more racial inequality outcomes. So I'm asking you to vote no on this rezoning. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jamie Aguilar. You should be able to unmute. Hello, Jaime Aguilar here. Um, 958 Julian Street. Can you hear me okay? We're having trouble hearing you all until I think you adjusted the audio. Yeah, we're, um, we're in the midst of upgrades that hopefully will make this better, but I'm, I'm glad we're able to have people attend without having to come down. I mean, awesome. You'll have Thank you for having us today. Thank you. Um, again, like I said, Jaime Aguilar, 958 Julian Street. I live near this um, proposed development. Um, really, this is my second time to come to this meeting, uh, to this um, planning board's body. Um, I was also on the West Area Plan Planning Committee, and I've been very involved in the um, landscape, uh, geography, the ecology involved when we look at our neighborhood and the health disparities um, that exist here. Um, like you saw in the equity analysis, this is a highly vulnerable area where the changing, you know, is really starting to amplify um, and we're losing um, families um, 
where they're closely looking to closing our schools more. I think Kathy addressed that earlier. Um, I think what, I, what I'm missing here is really understanding how you look at this equity analysis. You know, we've had some turnover at the planning department and we usually have a lot of, um, a lot of um, relationships, I'll say, with some of the planners. Um, and that's with really helping us connect with the, with, the, with the plan developers, with the owners, and really seeing the plans and talking about things that, you know, are important to us or that us as experts have looked at. You know, we have a vision for Bull Park. We've been working on this since 2016, and we've not had a, been able to have that conversation until another property by the same owner is um, recently was able to reach us um, um, reach our neighborhood organization, the Villa Park Neighborhood Association. So I'm just really curious, um, really about this plan. I didn't come to oppose or to ask you to to, um, to support this. Um, but what is um, something to consider is that affordable housing, you know, is not something that's very that's being built into um, these recent developments, particularly in this area where row homes and triplexes and quadruplexes are being favored, as well as these very small, you know, 12 to 10 foot wide, um, um, I'm not sure what to call them, row homes, if, I guess is a lack of a better term. But really, there's some health um, issues that I'd like to address by max by how um, property owners are being encouraged um, by planning department to really maximize the envelope and really impact in the ecology of the tree canopy and other green space, even though it is adjacent to um, green green space. Um, we don't even know really or haven't had the conversation to know if are these going to face the street and really activate the park or is there an impact to um, the neighborhood character as even more um, diversity of housing is going to happen um, because of what is um, going to be happening to the west here with these very interesting lots that um, I believe um, Habitat for Humanity has. So I just wanted to bring to your attention some things to consider um, when you're looking at the vulnerability, vulnerability, the equity, um, the affordability, and then the character um, that pushing this through um, could impact um, our neighborhood here in Villa Park. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Amy Contreras. Hi. Hi, my name is Amy. I currently reside at 1023 Lowell Boulevard. Um, I adamantly oppose this rezoning. I'm tired of investors slash property owners coming into my historically brown and black neighborhood to exploit it for their own financial gain. No local connection to any Denver neighborhood, no involvement, just blatant capitalistic gentrification is what they are all about. I know a lot of families that grew up in Villa Park that no longer live here because they had to move out because prices got so high as a result of unscrupulous opportunists like KLP LLC and Nick Young. Not even a mention of Eagleton Elementary in the rezoning application, which is in Villa Park and a school that might be closing soon. While I understand the current living, the current structure is unlivable to people like Kristen Lynn Peterson, who are just trying to diversify their retirement portfolio and could not actually live in a small single family home like my own. Eight, 100% for sale units could get her a big luxurious dream home anyone could enjoy. And I'm sorry if I'm coming off as though I'm complaining about gentrification or that I don't like this applicant or develop developers because I am re opposing this rezoning. I know, I know kids who grew up here that didn't see the value of their parents' homes and could care less 
if their families sold their home to move somewhere else 40 to 50 minutes away. Some, some people don't want to stay or come back to the neighborhoods they grew up in, and there's nothing wrong with that. I personally want to see families that grew up here move back, and they're not even able to do that. In the rare chance they are, they'll have to move into an overpriced one-bedroom row home. The problem is not everyone thinks in terms of true community development. If you approve this rezoning, you will continue the pattern of disinvestment in neighborhoods of color that have lasted for decades since redlining in the 1940s and continue now today. Thank you. Our next speaker is Laura Dezanek. Okay, hopefully you can all hear me okay. Great, thank you. My name is Laura Eisenach and I reside down the block at 911 Lowell Boulevard. I'm also a local business owner and community member on various boards. Um, I believe that this rezone should be opposed. It does not consider that the Villa Park neighborhood already has one of the poorest canopies in Denver and adding a larger square footage to the lot will only lessen this natural footprint. I'm not sure how this rezoning can say that they are supporting the climate initiative for the 2040 plan. There are also already numerous car accidents that happen along the Knox, Sheridan, um, and Perry main corridors nearby. This home is right by uh, a corner slash throughway along 12th that is already very dangerous to cross. Additional people and cars are only gonna exacerbate this. Uh, it's also going to increase emissions that I really don't feel are being factored in here uh, from the increased cars, as well as the carbon footprint of a larger lot. Um, by approving this rezone, I, you will be sacrificing the health and safety of our neighborhood. This would be in direct opposition of the zoning code requirements for public health, safety, and welfare for our community. There's also a factor of desirability for the neighborhood and a commitment to keep the character. I personally moved to the Villa Park area to avoid previous neighborhoods I had lived in, such as Tennyson and Highlands, which are being demolished and are allowing high density housing exactly like this one. I value a neighborhood I can walk around and enjoy viewing the homes I pass. If the homes are allowed to be rezoned like this, Outside of the already generously given ADU zoning, these, these lots are just going to become cookie cutter condos, and that's going to change the character of the neighborhood for worse and sacrifice the neighborhood that I love. As a result, the CPD recommendation that it thinks it is in alignment with those numbers one, three, and five up there, um, I really feel that the assessment is incorrect, and the board needs to oppose this until those are all cleared up. Thank you very much. Next, Eric Einstein. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you. Uh, Eric Einstein, 1051 Lowell, just right up the street. Uh, and my back alley neighbors, a lot of what's going on here. Um, it's interesting that this was portrayed in the way that it was. I echo a lot of the sentiments of many of the other residents and neighbors of this property. Um, the way it was presented 
is that this project that this is in line with the character of the neighborhood and unfortunately it is not although this might increase property values um it does not protect the residential character of the neighborhood and the way that they portrayed the villa park plan and the blueprint denver plan uh portrays it as this is the same neighborhood that we have just north of the tracks just north of the train tracks across 12th where all of the high density housing has been built these single these really tiny row homes um, with eight to ten units on a single or double lot uh, with overpacked parking that many of them are being used potentially illegally as Airbnbs rather than as single family homes for families or multi-generational homes with ADUs. Um, when I moved to this neighborhood, it was to move away from the city and the density a little bit, uh, but still have the access with while enjoying the single family homes and multi-generational units that do exist here and that they were encouraging and playing to encourage through all of those plans. The delineations they showed on those maps were not in line with many of the delineations that I saw in those blueprints and Villa Park plans that end at the light rail and then maintain the character of the neighborhood south of 12th, which is single family homes. Um, there was one exemption to this, and there's a corridor where there are row homes that are being built. And we've already seen the issues that are happening with those with Airbnb and the overcrowding of parking, even though they have enough, supposedly have enough parking for everyone because the units are so small, the expense, the, the type of people that are moving in there are using the parking areas for storage of skis, snowboards, expensive backcountry equipment and gear instead of parking and it's causing problems already. Um, the lots that are immediately next to this are have been sold by the city to Habitat for Humanity, which is a wonderful occurrence that will increase access to housing for families that were local to this area and people that want to stay here that can't afford the increasing housing prices in Denver. Um, building condos like this will not increase the diversity of housing. Thanks. Next, Alan Chappell. Alan, it looks like you're unmuted. So you should be able to let us know you're there. It does look it does look like you've unmuted yourself, but we're not hearing anything. Okay, I'm going to propose that we uh, turn to uh, calling for if there's anyone else who's come to speak on this topic, and then we'll return to Alan. Alan, you may have something going on with your microphone. Uh, not clear. Zoom looks good, but uh, we're not hearing you. Is there anyone else who's come to speak to this item? Please use the raise hand feature. Not seeing anyone else. So we will turn to questions from the board to staff, the applicants, or any of our speakers. And we'll come back to Alan before we conclude this part uh, of the agenda to see if we can hear you. Questions? Fred. Uh, a question for staff. <clears throat> I just want to make sure because I heard a lot of commentary that 
from people who participated in the West Area Plan Steering Committee and it seemed to say that this didn't, wasn't aligned with those recommendations. My recollections of what was in that plan are a bit different. So I wonder if you could dive a little bit deeper into that piece for us, just how it aligns or does not align, this application does or does not align with what's recommended in the West Area. Can you speak into the microphone, please? We are not able to hear you on the Zoom meeting. Okay. Maybe just yeah, stand right here. Hello, everybody. You want to sit here by this? Okay. Okay. <laughs> that should be good enough. I guess. Okay. Can you hear me there better? Oh, okay. Oh, thank so you. So much better. Okay. Thanks. Um, and I was saying that I can't really speak of the process of the West Area Plan because I wasn't part of that steering committee, but I can speak to the recommendation that we see in the draft of the plan. And um, there were some changes in this area. It went back and forth a few times. So because I saw some different iterations and conversations with that team, uh, this area, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked closer to Knox, right? And now we're looking at Lowell. So we're like two blocks west. And that area, uh, the West Area Plan draft calls for low-medium, and there is a very clear definition of what low-medium entails, and that's single unit, duplexes, two units, and row houses. So uh, what the applicant is requesting is part of the definition of what uh, West is suggesting for that area. Great, thank you. I just had one, it's not so much a question, but I'll, I'll do it now. Um, first, thank you for bringing up the West Area Plan. It is in this liminal space because it's not a draft it has been approved by the planning board but it is not yet adopted so you i think you did exactly perfect in presenting it as not part of the adopted uh, plans for our consideration but something that we need to know about because we have approved the plan and it's on the way to adoption so thank you uh, so much for that um, i can't form that in the, in the in this form of a question but i thought for our further discussions it was important to get that out thank you other questions caitlin I think I know the answer to this, but I just for the record want to be clear and understand it. So uh, when you look at the existing zoning around it, it is showing as urban edge, but um, the urban context is what's being requested here. And I believe Blueprint recommended urban, and that's why it's urban. But it's just that, I guess I'm just curious on that consistency with Blueprint in that it's very clearly urban edge throughout, but the Blueprint says urban. So, yeah, because the zoning currently is E, so urban edge, you're correct, but Blueprint Denver came later, and we see that that area now has the uh, station, has like the Knox uh, RTD station, so that's why Blueprint thinks that this area should be urban. To be fair, the differences between ERX, uh, ERH 2.5 and URH 2.5 are minimal. Um, there's only like one slight difference, that it's like E, they were to do a uh, single unit house. It allows for this urban uh, building form. U doesn't, uh, but because they're doing row houses, there's no difference. So it's basically the same. But that's why they're going for U because the direction of the green is for urban and not urban edge like it used to be before. Um, so this is a complex question. Um, and and I, we don't have the answer, so I don't expect you to. But I, I, I clearly see this tension around kind of a highly vulnerable area where we have 
includes clear direction that our plans say we need a greater variety of building forms, more density in housing for the fact that the pur purpose of affordability and the purpose of preventing displacement. But then we hear the concerns raised from the surrounding um, residents that, that they actually think this will cause displacement. So, I mean, this is, I think we see this in a lot of neighborhoods, right? And I think that's where the equity analysis starts coming in. Um, but I'm just curious if you have anything to add on that, because I know it's a struggle for a lot of neighborhoods in the city, right? Where you see, see some additional investments, see some density getting added, but does that further displacement or, or prevent it? <laughs> you know, and I think it depends on who moves into these units sometimes and the price of these units. That's, it's not something we get. Yeah, and I think that one, one thing that I would add uh, that was a staff report, but there was a lot of information there, is that uh, we see that increasing middle would help uh, diversify the type of units. And we see that as uh, something that could help, uh, as you, exactly what you're saying, bring more people here. And it's difficult to see it, I think, when you're thinking of one lot, but when you think more in general in the area, if we bring more units that are smaller, we could help diversify the area. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hear your struggle on it. I think we all hear the struggle. Following up a bit on that question, and then I have a second question. Uh, you know, again, not that the fact that they're planning to build eight units is, is one of our criteria, but I'm just curious because this issue of displacement and gentrification has been brought up, and eight units falls under the requirement that one of them be affordable. Um, how, how does the city, from a planning standpoint, how are you thinking about that where, you know, theoretically there right now is one single family de facto affordable unit there. There could be nine units with an affordable um, for sale with resign, but I guess is they're very strategically choosing to build eight instead of 10. And so how does the city think through that from, from a planning standpoint? Because if everybody comes and proposes eight units, nine units in Villa Park, uh, that does seem to have a negative impact. I don't know if I can speak of that. I don't know if you, um, I think that it's also a factor of the size of the lot. Like I don't think that they're purposely doing eight, not following the nine that are required for we don't look at the at the site plan. We don't look at the drawings, so we don't really like what we're looking here is like the use of the land. So we think that this area, this lot, is appropriate to have a row house building for. Even if it was like a four thousand five hundred square feet site that we're going to build two units, we would still think that it's appropriate, no matter of the lot, no matter of the amount of units in the building. That's not part of our criteria. Sure. Yeah. People are having a hard time hearing, so maybe stand over there somewhere. Um, to be transparent about this, so I'm invested on this with our time. So we're leveraging our group as a time into this project, um, just as they are into the property itself. But we work for a number of developers in town, specifically on the north side of the bridge, too. To your concern, what I see, very few are coming to us with those incentives. However, this, the new affordable guidelines that just went are, are very new. So the murmurs are starting. What I would recommend is on the planning case is when we have developers come to us, their next question is what are my tax incentives to do such a thing or a fast track review process. Um, it's already coming around that they have the fast track review process. Um, 
but they're not actually seeing that move quicker. Is what I'm hearing. Um, so, because you can't be prescriptive with the design of the buildings at the end of the day. So, if we can incentivize the developers that hire us, I think the, the uh, review process and and then maybe just spoon feed them knowledge for incentives that maybe federal or state taxes. And then I just had another question for staff. Um, and I, again, to Joel's point, I know that uh, West Area Plan hasn't been adopted, but I am a bit confused, similar to Caitlin, that this seems one of the exact locations that was that there was a call for more density and then staff brought back and said, the community has spoken. They don't want that kind of density here. Um, even though Blueprint says it should be more dense in this location, the West Area Plan is gonna call for more limited density to protect exactly the concerns that were articulated by some of the speakers this evening. And so, can you address that? Because it does feel like that was presented to us at, um, the last time you presented the West Area Plan. And I know it's not yours, so. Yeah, so, um, so Blueprint calls for high medium. So that's up to five stories. So it's much more intensity. So, um, and this whole area is high medium. Um, so I think that there was like some more granular um, look at this area in the West area plan. And that's why like the one that I brought a couple of weeks ago, it was more commercial, but still five stories. And here that we're a little bit further West, there were some conversations or what I hear from the community that they wanted to be less intensive. So again, like the, the low medium, um, it's still residential, but it has that caveat that it, they're expecting to see uh, duplexes and row houses. So it's still considered like a residential area with lower uh, density than what Blueprint suggests, but it's still more than single unit. Like the plan doesn't say that they should be only single unit houses. So that's, yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Explore a couple questions with you. Um, one of the speakers said it, it doesn't meet justifying circumstances. So uh, the analysis for justifying circumstances, one of the ways it can meet is since the time this area was last rezoned, there's been new plan guidance adopted. Blueprint Denver has been adopted since then, and then the West Area Plan has not yet been adopted, but simply Blueprint Denver means it meets justifying circumstances. Again, this is a very from a technical rezoning criteria perspective, is that right? And then kind of framing the conversation for us when we go into our deliberations. In terms of adopted plan guidance, um, there's the West Colfax plan, which calls for one to five stories and multi-unit. And this proposal, if that's all we had, would, would meet that. The row houses were well within what that would have. Blueprint Denver then um, in 2019 kind of restated and re reaffirmed that you know, the up to five stories, multi-unit, that kind of thing. So in terms of adopted plan guidance, this is well within that and, and very small compared to what that could be. And then if we, if we were in the position that we had approved the West Area Plan and it called for something less than is being applied for, we'd be in a really awkward position because the adopted plan guidance this would fit, but the plan guidance we know is about to be adopted that we've already approved is not, but that's not the position we're in. Your analysis shows and the, um, the future places 
section of the West Area Plan uh, calls for the mix of housing at low medium that you talked about, where it's small scale multi-unit buildings up to two and a half stories, dispersed among single and two unit buildings. We've got single, two unit, the very next thing up is row house. So that is the smallest multi-unit building that's not row house. So your, your advice to us is that even if uh, West Area Plan that's been approved, not yet adopted, had been adopted, this would meet that as well. So we're not in the uncomfortable position of plans fighting with each other. It's been scaled down, but this is still within the scale down. Is that a summary of what we're doing? That is correct. Okay. And I, I would like to add that the applicant, because uh, this application came earlier, and we thought it was prudent to wait for West to come over first, so you could see West could get it advanced. So the applicant was willing to wait and postpone the public hearing so that we could follow those steps. And I thought that that was like a, a really good suggestion and a really good uh, step to take. In taking a break from the maps for a moment, um, some of the folks who spoke um, have, have spoke to plan, West Area Plan, calling for anti-displacement um, strategies to be implemented. And there could be a range of anti-displacement strategies helping people with um, staying, staying where they are, economically helping them stay where they are, um, implementing with, with financial assistance ADUs that allows financial stability, et cetera. Um, is, it, is it the department's opinion that calling for anti-displacement strategies means don't allow rezonings? Because that would be new to me. Yeah. Like, rezonings are applicant driven. Um, we need to follow the five criteria. Um, they can play with the five criteria and within the plans. Like, Um, just a quick technical question to confirm because I heard somebody talking about urban design and there was a question if all the units are going to be uh, facing the street. I see in a zoning code that that's a requirement for the uh, row house building form. That, that, that is correct. Yeah, and I can let the applicant, but for what he told me, the plan is that they will No other questions. Um, we will go back to Alan Chappelle. Alan, can you unmute and we'll see if we can hear you. We're looking for Alan Chappelle. You were unmuted before. There you are. You're unmuted again. Can we hear you? Can you hear me? If you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to start with your name and address for the record, we'll take your comments. Yes, hi, my name is Alan Chappelle. I'm a resident at 1060 Lowell Boulevard. I live just up the street from this proposed rezoning. Like so many of the others, I strongly oppose this rezoning. This kind of rezoning drives speculation in our neighborhood, ca causing property values to go up and displacing people who live on fixed incomes and also people who want to live in the neighborhood despite this change in character. There's plenty of affordable housing in our neighborhood. 
This is not filling a need that we have. This is purely based on speculation by a non-resident to cause development in our neighborhood. The density is too much that is proposed and it's not what residents who anchor a neighborhood want. If this board approves this, they are tone deaf and not paying any attention to what the residents who have opposed this have said. I've lived in this neighborhood for 15 years and this kind of growth is happening rapidly and displacing people who want to live in the neighborhood because they will see the value of what is happening here and they will sell and leave. So it is the opposite of what is being proposed. It is causing displacement. That's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Do we have any additional questions for that last comment? Okay, with no other questions, I will close the public hearing and ask for deliberations. Yeah, I just um, wanted to again bring up the um, dates that are on the maps and the equity analysis, and I'll keep bringing that up every time we have an equity analysis until we get more current maps. Um, looking at data from 2018 and 2015, I don't think helps us have a clear understanding of the, the factors that we look at to assess vulnerability. Um, so it's, it's frustrating to keep seeing that. Um, I also want to just raise the point of um, the, the recommended actions uh, for the applicants in, in light of sort of the vulnerability assessment. I am really glad that this is there because I feel like it means that we're moving in the right direction as a city that we're starting to look at this, but I'm unclear what we expect the outcomes to be. Some of the recommended actions are clearly beyond what an applicant for a single property could be responsible for. And so, you know, other than a check in the box activity, I'm not sure what the purpose is. So I think scaling the ask around those is really appropriate. And then also having a response from the applicant that um, addresses them. Uh, sometimes I think the, the applicant responses, again, are just, okay, we're going to fill in our box and, and we'll keep going. And so, again, I, I think that we're moving in the right direction, but I would like to see us fine tune that. And if there's support from, from planning board that we could offer in terms of thinking through how we can improve that process, I would be really excited to have that conversation. Um, and then, um, Caitlin, you brought up sort of this, this tension that we're hearing between, you know, wanting to have more units there um, as a response to displacement pressure and rising housing costs, but also clearly hearing something else from the community. And I think the problem is, you know, we all feel what we feel in the moment and see what we see in the moment. And I think this is actually a reaction to having the light rail station there and that the opportunity for really thinking through and acting on anti-displacement activities around city capital improvements is where that needs to happen. And then there's this tough tension point as change change happens. Um, so it, I definitely appreciate the concerns of the people who spoke in opposition, um, but I do feel like this rezoning application meets the criteria and I will be voting yes tonight. Um, thank you. Um, I'll so I, I definitely hear all the concerns and I think um, this is a tough conversation, but what's going on in my mind is 
um, what are the alternatives? I mean, what would, be, what would we be accomplishing by preserving the existing zoning and would it preserve existing structure that is, um, looks like it's condemned, uh, not livable. Um, preserving existing use, I mean, in this case, the zoning not only uh, preserves or protects the building, but it also protects the use and limits it to single unit use. So if this property was to be redeveloped, which likely is to be redeveloped, um, it would result in a large single family home that's probably gonna be 5,000 square feet, definitely not affordable, um, and is gonna limit it to just one family, whereas what's proposed in front of us is actually eight homes or eight families. Um, yes, they're smaller. Um, I don't know that we can speculate how many residents they're gonna be and they're gonna be children or not. Um, maybe there will be families with children who just prepare smaller homes. Um, I think it's definitely uh, what's proposed in front of us definitely a better alternative that's uh, preserving existing zoning, existing use, and it also meets the criteria. I mean, it needs to um, uh, adopted plans. So in my mind, I, I will be supporting the application. I appreciate all of that. I think the most, um, the, the piece that I'm struggling with the most is that two steering committee members for the West Area Plan uh, testified today saying this is not what they believe their neighborhood plan um, is calling for and 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 so to me that um, you know I think I agree with Gosha and, and Mary that the rezoning today meets the criteria but but that flags for me a disconnect that this is a brand new not even yet adopted plan and if two steering committee members are already saying this rezoning uh, is not reflective of the work we did that raises a red flag for me. Um, and, and so I think, you know, I know one piece of feedback we gave on the plan was that there's a lot in here and then it might be confusing for community members and that feels true today. Um, so just, I hear you all um, on this call and I appreciate that feedback. You know, I will say that um, as somebody who purchased a um, multifamily um, building in a neighborhood that at the time was only uh, single family residential uh, because it gave me walkable access to uh, in the A-Line station. And in my case, it allowed me to not own a car. Um, I do think this is exactly the type of development we want near our transit stations. And it allowed me at the time to purchase a building um, that I otherwise would not have been able to afford uh, within that neighborhood. So I do think that that um, allows for, you know, regardless of who moves into these places, it does allow for individuals um, to own and be in the communities that they grew up in. Um, and I can say that because that's what I did. And so, um, those are just two thoughts, one on the disconnect and two that I, I do think this meets the criteria and is appropriate um, for approval today. Yeah, I share a lot of what's been said and thank you all. Um, and thanks to those who commented. I, I, as somebody who read the West Area Plan very, very closely, I'm struck at how 
seemingly in my mind perfectly aligned with what I read this proposal is um, down to the orientation of the lot the long lot side side facing the gulch and we certainly read in there about how new development should be oriented toward the gulch as well so yeah that disconnect is concerning and I don't know if it's the length which is something that has concerned me for a long time as well um, but boy it, it, it is strange that there's such a disconnect between what I think is pretty clearly written in that plan and, and community perceptions of what that plan says um, I think the point about Gosha's point I think is particularly relevant uh, about the alternatives if this neighborhood stays solidly SU, it does strike me that the likely outcome is very valuable, large single family properties. It's a very desirable location right near the rail. Rachel mentions there's great advantages to being there. Um, so do you do you end up with do you end up with some moderately affordable row houses or do you end up with some pretty astronomically priced um, single-family residences. And that anti-displacement issue is an important one. And I'm not sure that it's solvable right here, right now, through the zoning. There may be other tools that are necessary. I was, I was struck, and we talk about involuntary displacement often, and one of the commenters he was describing was people deciding to cash in and, and seeing the property values have gone up and they're going to sell their house because they want to cash in on that. I'm not sure that that's the same as involuntary displacement. Um, and I also think it's important to note the sustainability issues. Um, we heard comment that this was really uh, bad from a sustainability standpoint. But a lot of what I know about sustainability says that densifying housing um, to preserve open space rather than sprawl is important, as is proximity to things like transit and cycle infrastructure, which I know this is also that gulch is fantastic bike infrastructure, having ridden it a number of times. Uh, so again, it's always possible to interpret things different ways. Uh, where I'm sitting, it does seem to meet some of those sustainability goals as well. So I certainly will be supporting it, certainly share a lot of my colleagues' concerns. Thanks to everyone who came to speak. Um, apologies for the folks that I mispronounced your names. Your names are important. And uh, I, I listened carefully when you told me what your name was. So. Thank you very much. Uh, my colleagues have, have more or less covered the, the ground I think that needs to be covered here. I do think this meets all five criteria um, and would meet the criteria uh, if the West Area Plan had been adopted by City Council at this time. The West Area Plan really refined what was in the previous plans and directed this uh, low medium, this step up uh, coming from the south to this first edge along the gulch um, to, to being a mix of these low-scale multi-unit 
single unit and two unit all together in that first block against the Welsh. It also recommends uh, this first block um, coming up from the south right next to the Gulch go from urban edge to urban. Um, so I, I think this is doing what that uh, said. Now the, the, the thing that I'm sensitive to uh, that I'm hearing behind a lot of this is um, while this may represent consistency with the plans from a mapping perspective. Um, the, the zoning that's being applied for is consistent with the future place type and the context maps that we look at. Um, there are a lot of aspirations in the West Area Plan for other tools to be in place that will help people stay in their homes throughout the area. And although it wasn't really formulated this way, I think what I'm hearing behind some of this is those aren't in place yet. And um, if, if those were in place, then maybe these this evolution on individual lots as it occurs um, wouldn't feel so risky. And I just want to acknowledge that. Um, it, it isn't really, as I see it, part of the criteria we could use to point to to say, therefore deny a zoning that is consistent with the plan. But I think it um, emphasizes the, the next task those of you who are on the steering committee who came to the planning board public hearing recall my comments at the end, uh, these plans aren't self-implementing. So after getting it approved and after getting it adopted, um, I, I strongly encourage the community to stay after your elected representatives and CPD um, and all the other departments that are relevant to the other recommendations and plans to do the things the plan calls for, bring reality to the call for a variety of anti-displacement tools and other measures, uh, because you're right, they are all recommendations. But in this very narrow topic before us today, does, does this rezoning meet the five criteria in front of us? I, I do believe it does. And I hope all of you who are close to the plan, even if you uh, would prefer not to see this zoning go forward, you can see what it is that we're looking at uh, and how we reach that conclusion. I will be supporting this. Other deliberation? Would someone like to make a motion? I will. I move to recommend that City Council approve application 2022-I-00146, rezoning 1085 North Lowell Boulevard from ESUD1X to URH 2.5, finding that the applicable review criteria have been met. Second. By Mary and seconded by Mary Beth. Discussion on the motion. Seeing none, I'll move to a roll call vote. Rachel? Aye. Mary Beth? Aye. Mary? Aye. Fred? Aye. Gosha? Aye. Caitlin? Aye. I vote aye as well. That motion passes unanimously. We are on to the next item on the agenda, which is item seven. Official map amendment application 2022I00207, rezoning of 5055 West 29th Avenue from PUD 83 to UMX3. This is a public hearing. The public hearing is open. And Robert, hey, hi. Haig. 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 I had it and then I missed it. Robert Haig will give me seven. Right there. All right. Good afternoon, planning board. Thank you for taking the time to hear this case today. My name is Rob Haig. I'm a senior city planner with CPD. I'm 
going to present an overview of the map amendment 5005 West 29th Avenue. Subject property is located in Council District 1 in the West Highland neighborhood. The subject property is a 13,034 square foot zone lot at the intersection of 29th Avenue and 8th Street. There's a commercial and mixed use development that exists along, or excuse me, corridor that exists along 29th Avenue, along Sheridan Boulevard, with residential areas uh, that straddle the, uh, the corridor on 29th Avenue north and south. Subject property is currently zoned PUD 83, which is a former Chapter 59 custom zone district that specifically allows a transmission repair shop at this site in this exact configuration. The proposed UMX3 zone district would allow for a mix of uses with a maximum height of three stories. And the UMX zone district is consistent with the zoning along this section of 29th Avenue. To the north and south of this corridor, USUC1 single unit zone district. The most recent land use on the subject property was industrial, which reflects the transmission repair shop that was approved in the PUD. This is part of the 29th Avenue, <coughs> excuse me, this part of 29th Avenue supports a mix of uses and is surrounded by other predominantly residential uses. This slide shows uh, some of the character of the surrounding area. The photos on the right. The top right shows the uh, residential development in north of the subject property. The area, or excuse me, the photo in the middle on the right shows a uh, photo of the subject property. The photo in the bottom right-hand corner shows uh, the photo of the development immediately across east to the east. And then the photo in the bottom of the screen shows the property to the south of Grand Avenue across So the process up to this point, the informational notice was sent early January. Our planning board notice was posted uh, and sent on uh, February 13th this year. Uh, the planning board hearing is, of course, today with the city council public hearing scheduled for the beginning of May. So at this point, uh, public comment uh, has been received, generally in opposition to the rezoning request. Uh, comments highlight concerns about the use expanding off the zone lot, uh, about commercial vehicles parking on uh, public rights of way. Um, and these opposition comments detail potential zoning violations. Uh, in response to these comments, uh, we've reached out to the property owner and applicant uh, to work on resolving these. Our department has also opened a zoning violation case, did an inspection, issued a notice of violation to the applicant, and they're working to resolve the, uh, the noted zoning violations. This is an excerpt from the existing PUD 83 uh, that again limits the, uh, the site to the development that is, that is specifically there and the use that was uh, currently operating on site, which is the transmission repair shop. Uh, the, the proposed zone district would allow for the townhouse, shop front, general building forms, as well as the drive through building forms. Um, there are also building form standards that provide a transition from this UMX3 zone district protected residential zone districts in Oregon. As you know, the Denver Zoning Code has five review criteria that are used when evaluating rezoning proposals. The first criteria is that the rezoning request must be consistent with adopted plans. There are two adopted plans that apply to this rezoning request. First is Comprehensive Plan 2040, and the other is Blueprint Denver. The rezoning is consistent with several strategies of Comprehensive Plan 2040, but I'll just go over uh, these two quickly. Uh, this map amendment will promote strong and off neighborhoods by continuing to build the mixed-use corridor along West 29th Avenue, 
It also promotes environmental resiliency by promoting development where infrastructure already exists. Uh, taking a look at Blueprint Denver, uh, the subject property is mapped into urban neighborhood context. This context is described as having low intensity mixed use buildings embedded in single and two unit residential areas. This embedded mixed use corridor along West 29th Avenue generally fits this description. The Blueprint Future Place Types map designates the subject property as a local corridor future place type. These places primarily provide options for dining, entertainment, and shopping, uh, and also may include some uh, residential and employment uses. Heights are generally up to three stories, and a UMX3 zone district would effectively implement this plan guidance, providing uh, building form standards uh, to aid in, aid in the transition to the adjacent residential neighborhoods. Blueprint Denver Growth Area Strategy Map uh, designates this area as all other areas of the city, where we expect to see 10% uh, of new job growth by 2040 and 20% of new housing. That also finds that the requested rezoning proposal meets the next two criteria. The rezoning will result in district regulations that are uniform with other UMX3 zone districts throughout the city and will further the public health, safety, and welfare, primarily through the implementation of the adopted plans, but also by the continuing continuation of this mixed use corridor with walkable and bikeable access to the surrounding residential areas. The justifying circumstance for this rezoning is the retained former Chapter 59 PUD that exists on the subject property. Proposed rezoning brings us other property into the Denver Zoning Code, which modernizes the zoning on the property and provides for appropriate flexibility for future uses. Lastly, the UMX3 zone district applies to areas or intersections primarily served by local and collector streets where a building scale of one to three stories is desired. Proposed rezoning is consistent with the urban neighborhood context description, mixed use district general purpose statement, and the UMX3 zone district specific intent statement. Therefore, based on the uh, criteria outlined in this presentation, as well as detailed in the staff report, staff recommends the planning board order recommendation of approval 2022 City Council. Uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions. I do also believe that the applicants are here, uh, don't have anything prepared, um, and left that's changed. They're here to answer questions. Thank you. Okay. All right, we'll now move to uh, public comment. We have five people signed up in advance. I'll call those names so that you know you're on the list. And if there are others who'd like to speak on this item, uh, please uh, raise your hand in the room or online afterwards. Uh, and we'll be sure everybody who's come to speak gets a chance. The five we have signed up to speak are Alex Newman, Tony DeVito, Dino DeVito, Shannon Stortz, and Timothy Stortz. And as we start, I would note that um, in the staff report, uh, the presentation we just had uh, was mentioned the letters that have been received. Planning board has received all of those letters uh, with time to read them. Call first on Alex Newman. Yeah, hi, Alex Newman. I live at uh, 2918 Yates Street, across the street. Um, been here for about, uh, I want to say, eight, nine years. And um, I'm, I'm in favor of, of much of this. I, I'd like to make it so that it's only two stories versus three. Uh, there's been construction uh, over on Sheridan that's either four or five stories that completely destroys all the views. Uh, it makes it so there's traffic everywhere. There's backup all the way down the street uh, and having more and more people living on top of each other between there as well as off of Tennyson is only going to make the neighborhood 
just extremely more congested. Uh, in addition to that, um, Applewood has been nothing but uh, helpful and a great neighbor. Uh, so I have nothing against them. I just think that the the size of the structure is actually going to be the uh, the biggest issue. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next, Tony DeVito. There you go. All right. Good afternoon, uh, zoning board. My name is Tony DeVito. I'm a board member of 2481 Yates Street LLC uh, and also a native of this area of Sloan's Lake. Uh, the concern I have with the expansion of this commercial business uh, is tied to the day-to-day -day operations in a residential neighborhood. Um, in addition to staff that work at this location, numerous service technicians report to this uh, facility, switch vehicles, dispatched, I, you know, to their service calls, you know, so we deal with a lot of the parking of their workers and then the switch of the vehicles and their vehicles uh, in the in the residential area on the weekends. Applewood, um, you know, they've been, we've observed their vehicles utilizing uh, Yates Street, Zenobia Street, alleyways in between, you know, Byron and 23rd all the way up to 32nd. Um, you know, has an operational traffic impact study been conducted uh, regarding the, this expansion? You know, especially given the city's investment in Byron, 23rd, 26th, 29th in traffic calming measures, there's ped ball bouts near the lake, there's dedicated bike lanes, there's road diets that have been done on 29th to actually reduce the lanes. And, and we truly appreciate all that the city has done in this investment. Uh, this is in recognition that this is a residential neighborhood, and we, we we appreciate the emphasis on ped bike safety. So just kind of, you know, kind of curious of how, you know, expanding a, a business that increases day-to-day -day traffic uh, kind of works in that in that light. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dino DeVito. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Hello, I'm Dino DeVito. I'm also a uh, board member of 2840 LLC and 2809 LLC, and also a property manager for um, several of my mom's properties in the area. Um, we're concerned about the amount of traffic generated by Applewood Plumbing. Um, I don't begrudge them their success. They have a very successful business operation and a huge advertising budget and operate throughout the whole metro area all the way down to Colorado Springs and all the way up to Fort Collins. Um, they need to be relocated to an area that um, would service their ability to service their industry better, where they have access to main arteries and highways to conduct their business. They have, they're not the mom and pop shop that moved into the neighborhood 20, 30 years ago. Um, they're a large operation. Their traffic uh, that they generate is continual. Um, when they're, they have trash dumpsters outside their unit that are picked up on a daily basis and they block off the traffic on Yates, both directions and turning off at 29th while that is occurring on a daily basis. And it's also noisy as uh, I've noticed from our rental across the street um, because they're dumping hot water tanks and toilets and large items and so when these trash trucks are dumping it's a lot of material and uh there is also some blowback on the street from that uh there they are a commercial operation they really don't belong in a residential neighborhood and i am not in favor of any expansion of their operation in that neighborhood 
Um, I would be in favor of a UMX3 if it was a residential building that was being built and then sold off as another apartment. But even that, the traffic in that area, because of the, there's three other apartments that have been built in that area. Currently one is under construction on the corner of Xavier and 29th. And although parking is addressed, it's never enough. There's a lot of side parking that goes on. And this is a huge impact to our neighborhood, but the traffic generated from um, an operation of this magnitude, it's almost like a FedEx. These guys are going in and out continually, seven days a week, 24 seven. It's a large operation. I lost my feed. I don't know, can you still hear me? Yes, you have 20 seconds. Okay, I don't begrudge Applewood's success. I just think they need to really look at what they are doing in this neighborhood and perhaps it's time for them to move on to a, a more commercial area. I don't think it's uh, enhancing the desirability and character of the neighborhood or the property values in the area with their operation. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank next, you. Shannon Stortz. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Perfect. Yes, my name is Shannon. I um, live at 2904 Yates Street. So basically directly across from this proposal. And what I would say is I'm also not in favor of, of this expansion or any expansion on this. Everything that I wanted to be documented has been already communicated. So I don't want to rehash all of that, um, but I would probably sum it up in a couple areas is they already have three or four buildings. Um, and I agree with the gentleman who spoke prior to me of maybe they should look for a more commercial area rather than continuing to try to um, have their business addressed to the area. And I'd also like to better understand, I couldn't quite hear the gentleman that spoke at the beginning proposing it, but I'd like to understand why they need to build um, or the justification on building a three-story building rather than just using the existing building. And then I also agree with the parking and inconvenience. As of right now, the buildings that they have in the area, they do take um, parking along the residential streets, um, both with the um, Applewood vehicles as well as personal vehicles. And many of the employees either tend to hang out um, there or um, really just take up the space there. So um, overall, just wanted to learn more and that's why I'm on the meeting today, but I am not in favor of the overall expansion. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Next, Timothy Stewart. Timothy Stewart, you should be able to unmute yourself. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, I, basically everything that's been said so far is what I would like to speak to. I'm just in opposition of the height of the building. I think it's fine to be two-story. That uh, would be in line with everything else around there. The new commercial spaces that have been multi-story along Sheridan and 29th. Uh, I don't think there's at, those are adequate enough parking for them. And even at present, there is not enough parking around there. They've taken away the uh, parking uh, in front on that corner with the bike lanes and you no longer can park there when the Mexican restaurant 
is operating at lunch or in the evening, there is absolutely zero parking around the neighborhood for any of the residents, for visitors to come over. So I am in opposition to it as well. And I thank you for the opportunity to speak. Thank you. Uh, now we'll call on anyone who's come to speak to this item. We didn't have pre-signed up. I see one hand up for Lee Bird. I'll look in the room. Is anyone else here to speak to this item? And if anyone else is online who's come to speak to this item, please raise, raise your hand. Uh, Lee Bird, we're gonna ask you to unmute. Hi, uh, my, my name is Lee Bird. Um, I live on 2928 8th Street, so directly across the street from the uh, property uh, um, with this rezoning. Uh, yeah, my, my concerns are the parking. Obviously, I see people parking up, sometimes almost parking, uh, blocking my driveway of the folks from Applewood. I don't have an issue overall with Applewood. I know that in some ways, I feel like the lesser of two evils, the, the, the place could be sold and all of a sudden be three-story places across the other, not the lot that we're talking about, but the other areas. But, you know, it's just a lot for that, um, for that area. So my questions are, how much parking is involved in this new um, development? And also, or another big question for me is, the lot on the west side from them that they own that has one-story offices. What are the plans for that lot? Are they keeping it? Are they gonna sell that off to um, pay for this? Therefore putting in maybe another three-story uh, three residential complex there. So there's just so much traffic and so much parking coming up our street. And it, it just, it's an awful dense development for, you know, what is, has been a pretty, when I've been there for since 2007, you know, you could cross 29th pretty easily to get down to the lake. Now you have to wait a while. And if, you know, just, just concerned about that parking and concerned about the additional traffic and concerned about the density and just on that, that, in that, that area there. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, that is the only hand that I saw up. So we'll now turn to questions from the planning board to staff, the applicant, or any of our speakers. I will start with the question uh, to the applicant team. Um, can you tell us about your public outreach? Let me come over here and uh, maybe come that way because we've got this just with a little microphone. And start with your name and address. Um, Josh. Excuse me, Josh Gordon. I'm representing 5005 West 29th Avenue. My dad actually owns the property. Um, as far as public outreach, we sent um, we sent a postcard to all the um, immediate neighbors that we provided a list of them that were in Serenity. So we did that. Um, we met with the Islands Neighborhood Association. Um, that was a couple months ago. Um, we met with Amanda Sandoval, um, so that's pretty much the extent of it. And of course, you know, the city sent out mailers as well after that. Any further questions? I have a question yeah. for the staff. Um, so there were some comments that kind of suggested that maybe. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. 
that maybe uh, the neighborhood would prepare that this type of business relocated elsewhere and then maybe residential or other, other uses would come in um, that are more consistent with the neighborhood. Um, so can you speak about current zoning, what it allows, what it doesn't allow, and speak to the proposed zoning, say this business was to relocate to a different area, you know, how, how the building could be redeveloped under the current zoning. Yeah, that's a great question. So the current zoning really only allows you know, the, the QD is so specific, it even has a site plan exactly describes exactly what's there now, right? So it has to be a transmission repair shop. It be any other type of automotive piece. It has to be a transmission repair shop. It has to be in the same footprint of that building. Parking layout would have to be the same. In terms of, so it really can't change. It really can't be anything else. Previous in the previous use as it currently is zoned. Um, if the uh, rezoning were to be approved and the, uh, the current owner were to not uh, develop the property, and as you know, um, and I'll reiterate it just for the for the commenters as well, that when we review these proposals, we're looking at the, the zone district that's a, that's proposed by the applicant and any use that could be allowed there. Uh, so the uh, not a specific development, so not the you know, the applewood use that that might move in. We have to look at the gamut of uses. So um, that range of uses extends from multi-residential, multi-family residential use, uh, uh, commercial uh, retail uses, restaurant uses, um, uh, and, and any of those uses could move in in any combination. Uh, office uses would also be allowed. Um, so that's, I think that completely answers your question yeah. um, as far as what might be allowed there and then also what was, I guess, what is currently allowed. Thank you. Rachel. If the only thing that's currently allowed is a transmission repair shop, how is there a plumbing business too? So the plumbing, the plumbing business, and, and correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but my understanding is they operate in the, um, the buildings across uh, 29th Avenue and across the alley um, on the other Got side. Got it. Okay. Thank you. So, um, but uh, they would potentially acquire it or are under contract to maybe acquire it. That's the idea. That's my understanding. Either have or are under So some of the comments I think are about the, the uses on the properties. Thank you. I have one question I wanted to ask. And we heard from several or a couple of commenters that they were broadly supportive but concerned about three stories versus two stories. So I wonder if you'd just speak to us a little bit about uh, why an MX3 versus an MX2. Uh, great question. So the, the MX3, um, the new MX3, uh, ultimately falls within the plan guidance that we have for the area, um, being a local corridor, uh, future place type in the urban neighborhood context, um, as well as aligning with the zoning across uh, across 29th and, and along this corridor. Um, and, and we felt like the, the, the transition language within the uh, within the plan was kind of baked into the zoning code, so to speak, in those transitions to That's kind of where we landed at, at, the, at supporting the three-story district of being Any other questions, Caitlin? Certainly, this is a common or a question, but I, I think it is. Un, so I look at the description of UMX3 um, in our code, and it talks about promoting safe, active, and pedestrian-scale diverse areas with use of building forms, clearly defined and active with the public street edge, great. And to enhance the convenience, ease, and enjoyment of transit, walking, shopping, and public gatherings within and around.
I guess I'm curious if you have a sense, I think it is not very common in these sort of embedded UMX3 corridor areas to see a business kind of buy up and use multiple buildings, right? Um, you do see a little bit more of that variety of here's this restaurant, here's this office, here's this mixed use building. And so, I mean, I think the problem for us is that's not something we don't control the businesses that go in, we control the UMX3. I'm just curious if you have a sense of how common or uncommon kind of that consistency of a business doing that in the UMX3 area. I think it's just a little bit of an outlier in that, that way. It, it might be, I'm not sure. I can't really, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, of a case, like you said, other than maybe a restaurant tour in a corridor and several restaurants or things like that. But it's probably a little bit different, but um, off the top of my head, I can't think. So this might be in a fairly unique situation. So each of the, the, uh, the different properties would need, especially if it's you know bisected by a street in this case, like on West 29th, you know, they would need to be permitted separately and things like that. So, you know, there, there might be um, those types of limitations that would uh, uh, kind of break up the, the use a little bit, but, um, but again, that's you know, kind of a little bit the next step in the process. Uh, and you talked to us a little bit about the building forms that are allowed in the zone district and how if the property was to be redeveloped under the new zoning code, like how how the building needs to be sited relative to the streets and the transparency requirements and all that good stuff that we like to see in the urban context. Yeah, great question. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to recall all of the details you know, from, from memory. Um, what I can recall from memory is, is the, you know, the setback to the, uh, the adjacent property that's in a protected district, 10 feet, the 25 foot setback above 27 feet. Um, Looks like Andrew is helping me out <laughs> as far as the, um, like you said, and, and kind of to, uh, uh, to the previous points about activating the area and, and kind of addressing the street. Um, I'm sorry, didn't mean it to be a So there's a, a zero foot setback on the, the primary and side street. Um, uh, as far as build two, um, uh, the primary street has a, has a build two requirement of 70% within zero to 15, but there's not that requirement for, uh, for the side street within the, uh, within the UMX. So I would also imagine there's requirements for transparency and active uses and uh, yes. the way the building needs to address the street. Yes, so it's, it's not going to be a parking lot in front of a building. I think I'm just trying to kind of get to long-term vision. How does the zoning accomplish long-term vision for the urban corridors? If the property was redeveloped under proposed zoning, what outcome would that produce? And is that outcome consistent with our vision for, for the corridors and urban context? Sorry, one more question. This came up a little bit earlier, and I'm not sure that the answer, and I recognize that we can't hold you responsible for knowing what's currently happening at the property, but I'm not sure that that answer was accurate. I, I, I'm just looking at, at Google Street View, and I'm looking at an image that says it's from May 2021, and it does appear that Applewood is occupying the property. I see their trucks there. I even see 
a sign erected on the corner. So all of that, and I recognize that it's very challenging in terms of these restricted PUDs, um, but it does appear that the property is being used in violation of the code. It, it, presumably that sign went up in violation of code. That's correct. Does the, is there any impact on an application for a map amendment going through us, going through council for a property that's currently kind of in willful violation? That's a great question. And so um, those, all of those items you mentioned, even operating anything aside from transmission shop on the site is a, is a violation. And it's cited in the notice of violation that was issued to the property owner, as well as the sign. Um, and then some of the other you know, minor changes to the layout of the parking and things like that. So those are all violations that, that have been brought forward to the applicant. And they are in the process of working with our zoning neighborhood inspections team uh, in order to resolve. As far as your the question about how that might impact the, the uh, reviewer ability to move forward, I am I'm not sure, Andrew. I might coordinate uh, uh, even. I don't coordinate, <laughs> but uh, it doesn't affect the criteria. You know, right? It's, it's kind of where we, where we sure. landed when you were discussing this at our our level, unless Nate has anything to add. I agree with that. It doesn't affect whether or not the, it meets the criteria. So, so maybe just the follow-on question for the applicant would be, uh, in your in your architect's understanding of the new zoning you're applying for, will you be able to operate as you intend within the restrictions of the new zoning you're applying for? Yes, we believe so. Even what basically right now it's being used as a parking lot, um, and once it's rezoned, even if we were to do nothing, just leave it as it is. Kind of a follow-up question. I, I saw in one of the notes that there was a, a an issue about the size of the trucks that you're parking there. So, are your trucks all under two-ton trucks? All, all of our trucks are one-ton trucks. Yeah. Okay, so that was not part of the enforcement action. Uh, no, right now because it's kind of this is where it gets funky. Um, none of that is applicable until they um, are under the zoning code. So currently under the PUD, they're just kind of under a blanket violation of nothing is allowed. <laughs> If they were to move into the zoning code after the rezoning with their permits and then were to have trucks that were too large, that a complaint to the neighbor zoning neighborhood inspections would, would have to come and check the trucks and, and kind of verify that they were uh, under the two ton capacity that's, that's allowed for that limitation. Thank you. It's <laughs> a lot here. It's <laughs> a lot of meat on this. Other questions? Seeing no other questions, I'll close the public hearing and ask for deliberations. Rachel. I just wanted to comment that I'm struck today on a number of these rezonings. Uh, what a um, ineffective tool zoning is at getting at most of the concerns that a neighborhood has for how they want their neighborhood to function, whether that is um, you know, intoxicated college students or uh, gentrification or, you know, wanting the um, mixed-use commercial district to have certain types of uses. So um, 
well, I think this certainly meets the criteria. I am just struck by, I can feel the exasperation from neighbors of this is the point in a public process where they can chime in about how they want their community to feel and, and zoning's not an awesome tool for that, so. Yeah, I think I'm gonna also uh, echo this and repeat my comment from the last uh, rezoning where um, I kind of thought, what are the alternatives, right? I mean, maintaining current use uh, doesn't solve the problem. Clearly there is violation. I think the new zoning at least brings the promise of possible future, um, you know, the use that's more applicable, more, more uh, welcomed by, by neighborhood and building forms that are more appropriate in this context. Um, so um, I will support it, but I echo the same concern. It's, uh, it's just better alternative moving forward, bringing it to, to the new zoning code and creating again some framework for Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think the, the current chapter 59 highly restricted PUD puts us in a situation where there, there's really, I think, no choice that it needs to be rezoned. Um, that's, that's a terrible situation for a property to be, to be in. And that's why we now have in the, that as a justifying circumstance. Uh, I guess one of the things that I struggle with a bit and I think in the end, the plan guidance is, is pretty clear that this should be UMX3. There's that precedent with the other pieces around it. Really looking at the location where none of these buildings are really more than, than a single story, it looks like. It, I do wonder if UMX2 might have been more appropriate there. And I guess that's a level of granularity that <clears throat> We always struggle to get to that. And one of the things that I note that I think is important to, to keep in mind about a UMX2 zoning there, if that were if that was where, where this was going, is that this use wouldn't be allowed. <laughs> and, and that would, would very much change things. Um, this is a, a, a contractor, and while it is a, a, an allowed use with limitations in UMX3, it's not an allowed use in UMX2. Um, you know, so that having having said that, I think this is there's some unfortunate elements to this, but I do think going back to the criteria, we, you know, I don't see any path but to support this application in that context, particularly given the fact that it's surrounded by UMX3. Um, and it, you know, again, kind of raises those questions about specific instances and all of that. But uh, I think that's it. I'm starting to ramble, but I think that's uh, that's just in my. What I wanted to say thank you. Yeah, I'll just concur with my colleagues that I do believe this meets the criteria. I think the the essence of the concerns we're hearing have a lot to do with people who aren't talking with one another and they're, they're neighbors to one another, commercial neighbors, residential neighbors. Um, and I, I would hope that um, the applicant team and the neighbors who have concerns um, talk with each other, 
you've got a golden opportunity between planning board and city council, which is where this is going next, um, to talk with each other, not just about this rezoning, but uh, how you live next to one another and things that could be different um, that would help living next to one another. I'd also encourage the neighbors um, who are living along this mixed use corridor to, um, if, if on-street parking contention is a big issue, and I, and I think that was the main theme I hear through this, um, outside of zoning in, in the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, there is a program for exploring how to manage on-street parking and how to share that and, and in what parts of the blocks uh, do, do residents get preferences versus in what parts that uh, don't they or for limited times. Um, they have a, I forget what they call it, it's the Managed Parking Program in the Department of Transportation. All of these things, talking with one another, working on what the issue is, if it's parking or if it's something else, if it's noise, um, is something I would encourage because on this topic, uh, my colleague Rachel is exactly correct. We're, we're dealing just with zoning, but the things we're hearing about are things that have been pent up over time that aren't really zoning related, uh, but you have a forum. Please make the most of that and, and build the relationship uh, that you should have. On the criteria, I do think it meets the criteria. Um, specifically, the local corridor designation calls, local corridor feature place type calls for up to three stories. So that's an exact match. And if we're just for a moment to entertain the uh, counterfactual that uh, maybe maybe a two-story uh, mixed-use zoning would be more appropriate, I, I, I would disagree. I, I believe those two-story mixed-use zone districts are really designed for embedded neighborhood use, uh, not on uh, corridors like these, which is why they have the more restrictive height and use list. But uh, for the application we have in front of us, I'm happy to support it. So I'd like to make a motion. I move to recommend that City Council approve application 2022 I-00207 rezoning 5005 West 29th Avenue from PUD 83 to UMX3, finding that the applicable review criteria have been met. Second. Moved by Rachel and seconded by Mary Beth. Any discussion on the motion? Move to a roll call vote. Rachel? Aye. Mary Beth? Aye. Mary? Aye. Fred? Aye. Gosha? Aye. Caitlin? Aye. I vote aye as well. That motion passes unanimously. We've been going for two hours and 10 minutes, so we should take a little break so we can come back for two really excellent uh, info items. Uh, just as a reminder for those who are watching, there was another rezoning listed on the agenda, but it was listed as um, having been withdrawn. So we are done with our regular agenda, and the next two items will be information items. Let's return in 10 minutes at uh, 522. Recording stopped. Yep, if you can mute, uh, if you can mute the room.
in February on Elevating Denver. A humanitarian effort challenges the Mile High City. Take a look back at Five Points with the Emancipation Theater Company. History and story is always important. And memories create bonds and profound writing. Get it out of my head, out on paper, and therefore get that relief. Those stories and more on the next episode of Elevating Denver. Hey Denver, the decision is yours on April 4th. Make your voice heard by voting in the 2023 municipal election. Stay up to date on the candidates and the issues you'll see on your ballot at denverdecides.org. There you'll find Denver's most complete guide to help you choose your next mayor, city council members, and more. Candidate profiles, live candidate forums, and ballot issue breakdowns can all be found at denverdecides.org. Denver Decides, where Denver voters turn to get informed. Winter is here and icy sidewalk conditions can be dangerous for pedestrians. All Denver property owners are responsible for the sidewalk in front of their property. If you see an icy spot on a public sidewalk, call 311 or report the problem through pocketgov.com. Remember to include a picture if you can, as they are always helpful to identify the exact location. The city will then send out a neighborhood inspector to the address as soon as possible. Businesses and apartment buildings are required to begin snow removal as soon as it stops snowing. Residential properties have 24 hours until they have to shovel. Let's all do our part to keep Denver's sidewalk safe for everyone. Denver 311 and PocketGov are helping you navigate Denver City Services. Get ready, Denver. It's almost time to vote. For our mayor, city council, clerk and recorder, auditor, and more on election day, April 4th. Ballots go out March 13th, and you have until March 27th to return it by mail or drop it off when it's convenient for you at any one of the citywide ballot drop boxes or drive throughs If you choose to vote in person, vote centers will be open through 7 p.m. on election day. To help research your vote, watch upcoming Denver Decides forums and visit denvervotes.org. Drop off your ballot or be in line to vote by 7 p.m. on Tuesday, April 4th. And be ready when it's time to vote. Do you want to be active in your community, but you don't know when or where things are happening? Well, don't sweat it. Just check out the upcoming events calendar on denvergov.org. It's your one-stop shop for community meetings, online workshops, and more, so you can be fully informed and involved. You can even search by date, keyword, or even what neighborhood you live in. Plus, you can also see on what holidays the city is closed. The upcoming events calendar, yet another great feature on the all-new denvergov.org. Hola Denver, la decisión es suya el 4 de abril. Haga oír su voz votando en las elecciones municipales de 2023. Manténgase actualizado sobre los candidatos y los problemas que verá en su boleta electoral en denverdecides.org. Allí encontrará la guía más completa de Denver para ayudarlo a elegir su próximo alcalde, miembros del consejo municipal y más. Los perfiles de los candidatos, los foros de candidatos en vivo y los desgloses de las boletas se pueden encontrar en denverdecides.org. Denver Decides, donde los votantes de Denver recurren para informarse.
Hey Denver, let's get ready to take action on climate change. Our residents have spoken, asking for better, more convenient ways to recycle and compost. Together, we can limit the amount of waste we send to the landfill. When food and other organic material ends up in the landfill, it rots and creates methane gas, a dangerous contributor to climate change. Denver wants to reduce our emissions by 65% by 2030. To help achieve this goal, Denver is rolling out expanded waste services in 2023. This means that Denver residents will see free weekly recycling and composting added to weekly trash pickup over the course of the year. Denver is well behind the national average in the amount we recycle and compost. Let's change that. Currently, Denver only sends about 26% of its waste to a recycling or compost center. With weekly recycling and compost, we can cut what we send to the landfill in half. Do you know the vast majority of food products, from apple cores to chicken bones to eggshells, can be composted? Not to mention most yard debris, including all those leaves that fall from your trees. These little changes add up and can help us achieve our climate goals, and we'll get there through a series of steps in 2023. Starting January 1st, 2023, every household in Denver will now have weekly recycling pickup. Set your purple cart out on your regular collection day when it's full. Otherwise, no need to pull it out. Additionally, composting services will be available to all households as well. These green carts will be rolled out beginning in the summer. You will receive a notice in the mail before your cart arrives. The city is moving toward a pay-as-you-throw model and will offer customers the option to exchange their current trash cart size for a small, medium, or large one. Your new bill will depend on the size of your trash cart. The smaller the cart, the lower the fee. With the addition of weekly recycling and composting, which is included at no extra cost, the amount of trash you put into these carts should drop, allowing you to reduce the size of your trash cart and helping reduce your bill. Here's what you need to do to prepare for this change, including applying for a rebate for financial assistance if your household qualifies. Look for your first quarterly invoice between January and March. At least 30 days before your first invoice arrives, we will mail you a letter with key info such as your account number and a parcel ID that you'll need to set up an account. Once you have this info, go to denvergov.org slash utilities online to create an account. Once you have logged in, you can sign up for paperless billing, auto pay, view your cart sizes, and make service requests online. Eligible residents can apply for financial assistance. To find out if you qualify and to submit an application, visit denvergov.org slash expanded collection. As compost carts are being delivered, the city will offer customers a credit on their quarterly invoice while they wait for their compost cart to arrive and they can divert more of their trash. If you are already a compost customer, your services will remain the same. We understand that paying for trash service is new, which is why we are including weekly recycling and compost to help you reduce the size of your trash cart and reduce your bill along with it. This is a big shift in the way Denver manages its waste collection, but it's necessary as we take direct action on climate change. To prepare, 
Denver is hiring new drivers, adding trucks to our fleet, and ordering additional carts. Also, additional technology is being added to, in progress. to ensure efficient routes. We appreciate Good evening, everyone. How are you? Good. It's really nice to be here. I'm Robin Kniech, an at-large member of the council. And even though I've never served on the land use committee of the city council, I'm going for the largest number of land use bills ever of a council member who's never served on the committee. I hope you will help support me in achieving my goal. I am working with not only community planning and development and the Department of Housing Stability in running this ordinance, um, but also with Councilman Hines. Couldn't be here because he has a debate this evening um, and we wanted to make sure he was on time. So I am here to just introduce this for both of us as co-sponsors. Um, as you may know, Denver has kind of a track record of innovating new models of really trying to fill a gap where we have a gap between shelter for those experiencing homelessness and housing. And where we've had that gap in the past, you may remember the last time we did this was with tiny homes. And where we used a temporary unlisted use to uh, experiment and pilot a new model for sheltering individuals in individual dwelling units. And then using that temporary unlisted use to refine that model, prove that concept out, and really doing a very service-rich, very um, supportive environment for individuals. And then I sponsored the ordinance to bring it into the zoning code and make it a part of our zoning code going forward, still as a temporary use, but something that could be permitted going forward on our site. And that is really a similar trajectory to what has happened with what we have been calling safe outdoor spaces or temporary parking areas in the city. Um, the terminology that was used in the temporary unlisted use, I believe was sanctioned camping, uh, temporary, campsites. temporary campsites. So that's the term in the temporary unlisted use. Um, you're gonna see today that the terminology we're looking to use going forward is temporary managed communities as an umbrella to capture all of these. And so what they all have in common is an individual dwelling unit. And so what we would have is maybe it's a tiny home, a um, pallet shelter, maybe it's the igloo tents that you've seen at the safe outdoor spaces. Maybe it is the vehicle that someone's in. But all of those things, what they have in common is it's a dwelling sleeping space for an individual or a couple and their pets perhaps, which is really important. That has been a barrier that has put people into that gap between um, shelter and housing. And then it is an opportunity to get a communal restroom, a communal kitchen, communal services, and support towards more stability. Now I wanna say something really important before I turn it over to the technical team, which is that this is a model that is about filling a gap to save lives and get people on the path to more stability. Make no mistake, the answer to homelessness is housing. You are well familiar in this planning board with the city's extensive plans and our extensive investments in supportive housing. 
which is a model that is more than 85% successful in housing people leaving chronic homelessness who've been homeless for many years, including directly from the streets to homelessness, from shelter to homelessness. It works. We have many other people who are rapidly rehoused directly from um, homelessness into um, really very quickly. They fall into homelessness and they are rapidly rehoused. They're not chronically homeless. We catch them very quickly and we rehouse them quickly. Those individuals also successfully rehoused. Those are really successful models. What's the problem? They're not the scale. This is not a substitute for housing. They are not to scale for the size of the challenge we face. And we are not willing to allow individuals to keep falling through the cracks. We have more than 2000 people using shelter. That is an important life-saving tool. We're making it better. We have this investment in housing this model that this team is going to talk to you about today is for those falling through in between those two strategies, reducing unsheltered homelessness. That's why we're here. And that temporary enlisted use was going to expire at the end of this calendar year. I felt uncomfortable leaving office um, with the work we've left um, undone to pass that on to the next council, the next administration. And I'm really grateful to be uh, working on this ordinance so that we can put this into the zoning code for a path to make sure this option continues. Um, and we'll be here to answer any questions that you all may have after the uh, team presents. So Libby, take it away. Thank you. Welcome Libby Kaiser and welcome Tina Axelrad, our zoning administrator. All. I am Libby Kaiser with CPD and I will be presenting the information item on temporary managed communities. Also here tonight is my colleague Holly Kyle from Post who's been working on this project as well. And I could give several more introductions as well. We have several folks here. So um, next amendment as Council Member Cage just said, this temporary um, use determination was a response to the COVID pandemic, and it was put into effect in November 2020 to allow for a secured campsite comprised of tents or motor vehicles that provide sleeping accommodations for folks who are experiencing homelessness. And this use determination, again, does expire at the end of the year. This particular photo is a safe outdoor space at Regis University that's comprised of about 56 insulated tents, as well as there's portable bathroom facilities, staff trailer, and warming tents on this site as well. And in the past two years, eight sites have provided shelter for 516 individuals, 180 of whom have transitioned into permanent housing. And while most of these sites have provided tents to sleeping accommodations, at least one of these sites has provided secure space for people to sleep in their vehicles. 
The photo on the right illustrates an individual who has a pet and who would otherwise be excluded from traditional congregate shelters. Nonprofits have managed all of these sites. They provide round-the-clock staff, sanitary <coughs> facilities, and supportive services like meals and connections to permanent housing. After testing these sites during the pandemic and seeing their ability to successfully meet a need for unhoused residents in Denver, the city is proposing to update the zoning code to continue to allow for this use beyond the expiration of the current use determination. The zoning code already allows an array of temporary uses and has existing standards for temporary tiny home villages. Staff has been working on blending these existing regulations with the regulations that were specified in the unlisted use determination while incorporating some minor changes based on lessons learned over the past couple of years. And as Councilmember Kinch mentioned, the use in the zoning code will be temporary managed communities moving forward. The intent in developing these regulations is to similarly apply rules to a variety of temporary sleeping accommodations, including tents, vehicles, <coughs> tiny homes, and pallet shelters. These photos illustrate pallet shelters which are similar to tiny homes. Um, they can be assembled quickly with prefabricated panels. Like tiny homes, the air can be cooled or heated inside via electrical connections, but they do not include any hookups to plumbing and water and therefore do not have individual bathroom or cooking facilities inside. These are purely for sleeping. So our approach to developing these regulations um, has been working teams uh, via staff from CPD as well as host, meeting regularly with council members Robin Keach and Chris Hines. And we've also applied input from the mayor's office and uh, conversations with folks who have been operating these sites. Now I'm going to transition into the, a preview of the proposed regulations. And on the next several slides, I'll go over the existing regulations for temporary tiny home villages, as well as those within the temporary use determination. So you can see how we arrived at the proposed regulations. Now to date, these uses have been allowed in nearly all zone districts, but in single unit, two unit and row home districts, tiny homes have been limited to locations where they are accessory to a civic, public or institutional. And that same limitation is proposed to be applied to temporary managed communities. However, we are proposing to be a little more flexible in allowing these to also be sited on vacant corner lots with a minimum size of 5,000 square feet, where at least one of the intersecting, intersecting streets is a collector or arterial. And in current regulations, there is a cap on the maximum number of sleeping units allowed in temporary tiny home villages. And we are proposing to lift this cap instead allowing the capacity to be determined by structure separation requirements in our building and fire codes, where that building separation applies to tiny homes and pallet shelters. There are no separation requirements in building and fire codes for tents or vehicles in a use like this. 
And then looking at operational requirements, tiny homes and our temporary campsites uh, do require an operation plan to be submitted as part of the zoning permit. And this plan typically includes very specific details regarding how the site is staffed and maintained. And through our experience over the past couple of years, city staff no longer feels the need to require this operational plan as part of the permitting process, since the items that are included in that plan don't necessarily lend themselves to oversight by our zoning or building departments. So moving forward, the regulations include a statement that allows the zoning administrator the ability to place certain limitations on a site as needed in order to mitigate potential adverse impacts. And then we are also requiring that this use be operated by a nonprofit organization or a government entity, which is certainly a key difference between these sites and unsanctioned campsites. As Councilmember Keach mentioned, they come with um, numerous supportive services. And then we've also introduced some flexibility into the setback requirements. Whereas temporary tiny home villages currently must be set back 20 feet from a primary street in single unit to unit and row home districts, we're now proposing a zero foot setback along primary streets since this is a temporary use and we're not as concerned with a permanent structure being located 20 feet from a primary street in a manner that maintains the character of other homes along that block. And then we've also heard that this increased flexibility is key for operators to design their sites efficiently. Finally, we're introducing the ability of the zoning administrator to suspend zoning code standards and procedures during emergencies that threaten public health or life so that temporary managed communities can be quickly deployed if needed. And this is similar to the allowance that applies to permanent residential care facilities that can increase their capacity in emergencies. To end, we're about halfway through the process of getting this text amendment drafted and approved, and we plan to publish a public review next week. And then we'll be back in front of you for the planning board hearing on April 5th. And tonight we'd appreciate any questions or comments you may have that will influence our final draft. Thank you. Take questions, start with Mary Beth. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, well, I'm, as you know, everybody knows that one of the most important things about providing housing is providing supportive housing, the word support. And I know that's not, this isn't a land use question, but are there going to be expectations or even regulations about the support that is provided to your customers? We're not specifying that in the zoning code. No, but, but will there be, and that's why I say it, it's not a land use question. But. Yeah, so the recent sites have been funded by the city. So by virtue of the funding they've received, those things have been conditions. It's not a requirement of the zoning code that they be funded by the city. I think it's hard to imagine many operators being able to fund them without our funding, right? So I think 
first two sites were funded with purely philanthropic dollars because the city was new to coming on board with the model. And so part of the way that we got there was by fundraising and saying, hey, we'll give us the permit and we'll fundraise and tow in the water. But now that the city has seen this as an alternative and a, and a much more sanitary and civility oriented alternative to unsanctioned camping, I think you've seen that we've now used ARPA dollars, city dollars, um, housing, not housing fund, I'm sorry, sales tax dollars for it. And so I, I think that I would find it unlikely to see many operators be able to do this without city funds. And so Holly, you can certainly speak to the fact that any city funding is going to come with those. And it's a model, right? We've not seen any local government do this model without those services because it's so key to the success of the model. Um, so, so I think that I feel a pretty high degree of comfort that these communities, if, you know, be, by virtue of needing that funding to succeed, by virtue of it being the best practice, that that is an integrated piece of the model. Um, we have, you know, only several operators and, and these operators, it's a really important core piece of what they do. It is a piece of why we have a requirement that it be a nonprofit or a government operator, right? These are mission-based entities. This is not someone off the street necessarily um, self-organizing, right? You have to be a, a mission-driven organization to do this. So it's conceivable that you might have a, an encamp uh, not an encampment, but a, a facility, a sheltered housing or whatever, that would not have any sort of social uh, support to these folks if there wasn't money for it or how, is it is it or is it going to be a requirement of your establishing a place that you also with, that you have to find the money to provide support emotion you know I uh, want to be clear support. that there is nothing in the current permit that requires services by virtue of the zoning permit right and so we have eight sites and every one of them has had services even before the city funding came on board, right? right. So the zoning, right? Zoning, zoning covers land use. Right. It doesn't cover what happens inside of spaces, right? right. And so, um, so this is actually not a change. The current permit is based on, you know, setbacks and land use requirements. It doesn't have, you know, Tina's gonna jump up and correct me if I'm wrong, but this, <laughs> This is not a change. The temporary enlisted use does not have that built in because that's not what we do in zoning, right? Similar to some of the what Rachel was talking about earlier, right? Zoning doesn't cover programmatic, right. right? And so I think that this is not a change. We're moving very similar zoning land use things from the temporary enlisted use to the zoning code. That was not part of the temporary um, unlisted use. It's not going to be part of the Zoning code either. Can I ask a question related to that? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I was going to chime in on that too. Thank you, Tina. Um, even though that we're not specifying that it has to be managed, we are building that expectation into a revised and updated definition for this temporary managed community, whereas that wasn't something that was in the temporary tiny home villages. We are specifically saying that it should come with some kind of housekeeping facilities and supportive services and are alluding to that expectation. Dig in, one of the things that is being removed, it seems like, is that operational plan. And I don't know enough about sort of what the bones were of the operational plans, but I was 
thinking that they were maybe speaking to, you know, hours of operation or um, the customers or kind of that, I think they were used to make agreements with the neighborhoods to give comfort around kind of how they were going to operate the space and what supportive services were going to exist. And I'm just, but that may be completely wrong and the operational plan was something different. So that, that removal, I guess, I'm curious on why and would that speak to some of the supportive services or parameters that are good to keep? Better. Actually, I'm wondering, Paula, maybe since that was kind of something that you guys also oversaw with your contractual obligations, maybe you could speak to that as well. Everyone, I'm Polly Kyle. I'm with the Department of Housing Stability. Um, we, um, in our contracts, we that we have with these operators, which, as Councilman Page said, we have contracts with all the operators that are currently operating sites. Um, we specify some of those items that you're talking about, hours of operation, what services are going to be provided, how many folks will be served um, through those contracts um, over the life of the contract, and those pieces. Um, for the operational plan, um, there wasn't a great enforcement mechanism outside of our contracts in host to enforce that piece. So we want to stick with our contracts for our enforcement mechanism. And so that was kind of our so it's sort of duplicative, right? Where you see it, like the contract already said it, so you didn't need operational plan to meet. And, and our zoning staff is really not in the best place to be dealing with human services oriented things, right? So I think that, you know, where it's something about fencing and things like that, the zoning code has already provisions or the building code has provisions yeah. about fencing. That should be dealt with under zoning and, and building code. Right, where it's something about human services, then it should be in a department that deals with human services, right? So I think that to the extent we are moving into a world where we're no longer in the world of emergency, we should have the agencies that regularly handle these things handling them rather than having our zoning administrator trying to deal with porta potties or things that are not really in their ballywick. Does that make sense? So our goal is where there's a code, deal with the code that exists rather than trying to recreate and um, regulate through people without the right expertise. Um, and then in terms of the neighborhood part of this, I would just say that generally speaking, I think um, our, you know, I, I don't know if anyone's seen it, but my office you know, convened group uh, of stakeholders who build supportive housing, who live in supportive housing, and neighbors who live around those buildings to do a guide. And the way that we generally describe it in terms of these types of services or housing is that the relationship of a good neighbor agreement is really should be about the interface between neighbors and a building. It's not about what happens inside of it, right? So it's not about the services. It might be about well, what, where is our communication if something goes wrong? Who's our point? How do we resolve concerns? It's not about the nature of the services that are happening. That's why those things happen in a contract, right? So you'll know that the providers are not entering into contracts related to who they serve or how they serve them or how they, you know, those are not things that you're gonna see in the neighbor agreements with providers in, in most cases because they those are determined by funding and best practices and evidence and, but they are gonna have potentially good neighbor agreements about lighting or about how they resolve conflicts or whether they meet on a monthly basis or things that are about the interface, right? That's kind of the goal. 
So by way of disclosure, I, I'm a supporter of the SOS sites and was among some of those really philanthropic supporters of them. So I'm, I'm pretty aware of them and, and very much in favor. And I also was responsible for negotiating the good neighbor agreement between the Clayton neighborhood uh, RNO and uh, the site that's located in our neighborhood, which is pretty close to my house. Um, so I'm, I'm very much in support. The questions I had, one is, how are you coordinating this effort with development services or are you and with DFD? It just feels like there's an opportunity with the momentum behind the work that you're doing to help ensure that our building regulations, fire regulations are easing the way for these to happen as well, where there might be issues. I'm not quite certain what you're getting at here, but these, as I mentioned, the um, tents or parked vehicles, those wouldn't have any kind of separation requirements for the building or fire code. However, temporary tiny homes and pallet shelters being structures would have to have a 10 foot separation. I'd the, say the tents have had to have some some building permit process. And I understand that it, I, I'd heard at one point from Gosha that at one point there was even trying to put them through energy code requirements. Yes. <laughs> 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 We're all like, well, it's complicated. So just to assure everyone, since the get go of the first idea of a tiny home village and for fire, for building CPD, our public health environment, um, posts have all been working together for this. Um, there are different thresholds for the intensity of engagement by each of those departments and the many different types of managed communities. Uh, we started with tiny home villages. Um, those are structures subject to the full panoply of building code requirements, including the energy code, and they have been built to code. The ones you see out there at the building code are affordable, they could be used to different sites, uh, but those are built to code and um, because they fell under the jurisdiction of the building and fire code. Uh, when we got to structures that were um, tent or membrane, structures like the outdoor tent um, building pretty much stepped out. It wasn't needed any permits for electricity. That was still required. So, you know, certain uh, plumbing or electric, electric permits were still required. Building was there at the table, but you didn't need a construction permit or show that you met the energy code or the building construction code to put the tents up. Fire was very much at the table. And that's where recommendations for spacing, while not necessarily per code, but just basic common sense spacing. And, you know, thank goodness we had it um, because there was a fire at one of the sites. Um, that became a requirement. Um, and you, in the, the use determination, as just noted, carried the weight of a lot of different agencies because no one else was putting it down in paper. So it was a good place to dump everything we could. Um, so things that uh, in that operational plan, you know, that's why things are being stripped out now. Like the fire code, you know, the separation was always, and safety was always very much at the forefront. As we moved to pallet shelters, um, 
generally those are going to be treated more as kind of a hybrid, so not not subject to the strictness of the construction codes, but still still you need a building permit for it. Is there an opportunity as part of this process using the momentum that you've got with this process to help to kind of codify what standards will be applied and, and kind of create an easier path for those nonprofits in terms of getting it permitted and getting it through the system? There's separate codes. Yeah. I would like to say yes, yeah. but let's but be honest, there's separate codes. Just FYI, we do create a new residential as an amendment to the Denver Building Code to accommodate the tiny and it's much less stringent than right. uh, a congregate living facility or Thanks. Um, I wonder if we could talk for a second about the restriction in the SU districts to either an accessory use or only to a corner lot. In, in some ways, I, I question it a little bit. I, I recall when the, when the uh, site went up in Park Hill, despite the issues with neighbors initially. <laughs> um, one of the things that I think was interesting about it, and obviously that was as an accessory used to a civic spot, but it was it was a mid-block location and it almost disappeared the site in a way that uh, the corner locations, I think, did not. In a way, it, it really became invisible. Mm -hmm. And I would talk to people who would say, gosh, I, I, I went to look for it and I didn't find it. <laughs> So it might almost reduce the impact. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this was us as sponsors really checking with operators. The odds of putting that between two single family homes or townhomes mid-block, it's not going to happen. Your ability to service it, remember you're using temporary restroom facilities, it's just not practical from an operational standpoint. And it, it's just, there's no point in really pursuing it. Um, in terms of lot size, et cetera, the odds of finding a lot of that size mid-block, right? The, the larger lots are going to tend to be corner lots. So I think it was like, what's the practicality here? So okay. yes, that was accessory to a civic use. That's why it was on that side of the facility. But to put it between two single family homes or townhomes was just not going to be practical from an operational standpoint. Okay, great. And then just one other comment, and that is I, I noted the language about injuring the use of the neighboring properties. And I, I just hope that when we see the actual language, it's not so loose that anybody could say, well, that's injuring me in some way, shape, or form because, you know, I don't like it, so it's injuring my <laughs> use of the property. I mean, I've just, I've seen that language sometimes be so loose that there's not going to be any way to stand up to it. So I just would encourage us to make sure that we. I appreciate that. And, and that is in there um, as a replacement since we took the operational plan out. So it still does give the zoning administrator Great. some authority to put some restrictions on a particular site if there's a need to do that. But that's, it's not intended to exclude these sites because somebody just says, comes up with some reason um, that's a proxy for them not liking it, right? This just gives the zoning administrators some Great. back home. And it's about a long-term impact too. It's not about like, you know, sound or necessarily something temporary. It's about is there a lasting impact here? So I mean, the wording is still, obviously it's not drafted all the way yet. That's so. great. I mean, I just, I've seen that language sometimes that is left open, is left open really a, a neighbor response of, you know, gosh, there was somebody 
on my lawn and that's a negative effect and you know you guys got to shut it down and, and i just yeah, i think that authority should definitely sit with with staff and leadership at cpd as opposed to a neighbor just chiming in and saying shut it down it's it's got me so thank you i appreciate it can i, can I just dovetail on that i just want to are you imagining using it more on the front end as it's being permitted to place additional conditions on it, kind of thinking ahead of what might injure versus reacting to, yes, okay. But that makes a lot more sense in my mind. I was imagining it more, almost more like a, like a responding to a neighborhood complaint kind of issue, which seemed to your point. At that like, point, the permit is issued. And if you want to appeal the issuance of the permit on the basis of that phrase, What's the definition of temporary? Yes, yeah, so it's a great, great question. Um, so the maximum duration that one of these uses would be allowed at any given site would be four years. Okay. And then it would be four years off. If it's out of sight for one year, then it would be one year off. So that time of being away equals the time of operating on a particular location. What's, what is the logic behind it, I guess? And I understand, like, we don't want this, this is not a permanent solution. This is a temporary solution by the nature. We, we don't want to prolong it, but obviously it's better than doing nothing. And then I wonder, this, the reason I asked this question, because I remember when, sorry, going back to the tense, when they became permanent, because the original definition of temporary structure was six months. So when it became apparent that they were gonna last longer than six months, that's when the, the discussion about permanent structure became um, present in a conversation. And so I wonder like, how, how does four years don't impact um, operations and um, kind of logistics of moving, moving the facility? Well, let me answer in two different ways. I think um, from the first point of view is I think that, you know, for tiny homes, particularly, they do have a permanent option in the zoning code and they will still have that. So on the temporary side, we're merging all of these into temporary managed communities. So they will all be under one, but tiny homes still has a path to permanency. You could create a permanent tiny home village, but you would have to meet setbacks and permanency in ways that you would want a zoning code to meet if you're gonna have a permanent neighbor, right? We don't have folks meet that for a temporary site. And so that's the trade-off, right? You have fewer things for form and other things that the zoning code doesn't make you meet. 
so so there's a trade-off right so you make you meet a higher standard if you're going to be there forever so that's one difference right so these are not forever sites and in exchange you don't have to meet all the form and other things right so there's a trade-off on the zoning side on the operational side sites right now have struggled to get longer than six months from a landowner you know, they've struggled to find inclusive communities. And I will say it's not true that every community, you'll see this sometimes, every community is fought them to the nail. That is not the case. The Regis community has been very, very inclusive. There was a lawsuit uh, for the site at East Human Services, but there was not massive community opposition. The lawsuit was from a landowner who didn't live in the neighborhood, I will just note. So it is not true that there has been big fights. We've had a lot of inclusive communities, not everyone, right? Some have been more contentious than others, but it has been, um, so I would say four years is a, would be a very long tenure for these sites compared to what they've been, right, so far. And so I think it's not um, easy to move them. It's expensive and it's difficult. Um, it's also hard to find land that's available for that long. So I, I, you know, I think four years is a decent starting place and it's appropriate starting place. And I think that Generally, if we have land that's available for longer, it begs the question building denser <laughs> long-term housing, right? So I think that's a fair debate to have. I'm, I'm proud to sponsor something for this length of time for this model. And, and we can debate again, longer term, another day. But we run into then all the things you mentioned about building code and temporary structures and all that, so. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, going on the tangent of um, not letting the perfect get in the way of good or better in this scenario. Are you also extending this program onto existing facilities such as motels that could be temporarily used for emergency shelter or, or to, and I think the sim, similar logic would apply. Sometimes they don't meet the code, but they're better than um, alternative of. Can I clarify, do you mean like in their parking lots or do you mean the structures themselves? So the SRO, so the structures themselves, no, they would still be subject to the regular zoning code. If their parking lot was available and underutilized and they didn't, I mean, I think the question about would they be able to give up their parking and not be in violation of the zoning code is a question for, you know, the zoning administrator <laughs> and others. Like, would they be under parked somehow if they gave up their spots for this site or is there a variance they could get? That's a whole like site-by-site -site analysis probably. And I don't think that's where Gosha's going either. It's like- no, I think I was going about the, the building or use of facilities, okay. right? There's, there's that's, already, I think that's just a, a hard totally different thing. Oh, okay. Different thing, okay, that's not, a hard part note. Of, yeah. not part of this program. Okay, yeah. uh, thank you. Uh, one last question about community engagement going back to the comment about inclusive communities. Is there still a requirement for public meeting and- Community informational meeting, which is con consistent across most of our, you know, many of our group living larger impactful uses. It's an informational meeting to answer questions, help folks understand what the model is, answer basic information. Thank you. Pre application. Pre application. Uh, Rachel, Mary Beth, and Mary. So, Gosh, I asked my temporary question. Um, I would echo Robin or Councilman Kanish what you were saying about I've had two communities within a stone throw of where I live, and they've been wonderful. Um, on the temporary, going back to the temporary piece, how do you guys think about, and this is less of a zoning question, but just more of a curiosity, how do you think about 
this like six months versus four years when you're evaluating, um, does this make sense for this site? Just from, and maybe it's a host question. Um, so I imagine to your point earlier that if they can, you know, that there's this balance between uprooting someone who like, we have a site, but it's only available for four months versus, okay, if the site could be developed for denser affordable housing, let's go that route. So how, just from a citywide standpoint, how, how are folks thinking about that? I mean, might be a host question. Um, take a stab at it. <laughs> um, so our contracts with the, so the hardest part about these sites is finding the land. Mm -hmm. There's a whole working group that is meets regularly to just focus on where we're going to move the site that is running out of time at their current site. So host contracts don't actually go to the particular sites. Um, they go over the, the span of years and cover um, all of the sites. So Currently, our contract with um, Colorado Village Collaborative, for example, is through um, 2024, um, and it says that they are expected to um, serve, maybe the number off on top of my head, but a certain number of individuals over those next two years. Um, so we're a little removed. We have host folks that represent um, at that meeting looking for, for land um, and finding viable viable options, um, but um, the actual contracting is, is separate from where the sites are actually located. Fascinating, so that's exactly answers my question. It's super interesting, so thank you. Um, next question I had was, I know part of the conversation around uh, these communities has been that around where land is available, that that gets concentrated in um, certain other communities, certain communities in Denver that have already had disparate impacts in terms of, you know, shouldering the burden of services and, and resources within the city. And that's been, you know, part of the dialogue that, you know, Wash Park, for instance, um, doesn't have a lot of vacant sites for uh, these communities. And so from a zoning perspective, how did you think through that to say, you know, we do want, if there's a church parking lot in Park Hill that's willing to, um, you know, give their land for this purpose, how did you think through that as you thought through zoning designations and where this would be allowed such that it would be around the city as a whole? Well, I think that's why it's important that it includes some lots in SUTU areas, right? Because part of the reason that it falls more disproportionately in some communities because that's where the higher density zoning is, right? And some areas have more SUTU zoning. So being able to get at at least corner lots that have larger square footage or those civic uses in those neighborhoods that are embedded does touch every area of the city in a more equitable way than just going to high density areas. And so I think that is a piece of it. So I think those are important pieces that need to stay in the package to be more equitable than, for example, just putting this on commercial lots or just on multifamily lots. Great, thank you. Um, it's sort of following on both your questions because I'm still confused uh, about, about uh, SU, SU and TU zones, then the South Park Hill example that parking lot is it wasn't on a corner are you are we saying that they have to be on a corner because there would be 
you know, many churches are embedded inside of the, these yeah, issues. I'm sorry. That's I'm sorry, Meredith. I didn't mean to cut you off. That's all right. It's either accessory to a civic public or oh, either or use anywhere. Okay. Or it could be a regular lot if that lot is larger and on a corner. And again, that's for truthfully operational accessibility reasons. Um, because it's just going to be difficult to service a lot mid-block. And for example, safe parking is not going to be on a regular, right? I mean, safe parking is going to be on a parking lot. It's never going to be on a residential lot that used to hold a home. It's not going to have the right curb cuts. It's not going to be appropriate. So we're probably only talking about a safe um, outdoor space. And it's going to be difficult to get enough units for it to be efficient to operate on a typical residential lot. So I'm not sure how likely it is you're going to see many sites on a typical residential lot anyway, but even mid-block, so it's really, again, operationally it would be unlikely to be anywhere other than a corner lot anyway, just for the ability to- But it, it's not prevented if you did have a large enough parking lot right. or something that was exactly. not on a corner. So if okay. you, you know, every now and then you'll see that there might, I, I, again, I don't know, sometimes there's these latent lots. You might see a church on one corner, and then you'll see a paved, what looks like a residential lot across the street. I don't know the zoning of those lots. Maybe it is a residential lot that got zoned for parking. Maybe it's not. I, you know, I don't know what all those zonings are. But if that lot was potentially not zoned with the same zoning as the institutional use, or maybe it is zoned SU, but it's separate from, right. you know, and it's, it, you know, is it accessory if it's across yes. the street? You know, this maybe opens that up in a way that it wouldn't if it, it wasn't exactly adjacent to have to be on the same lot. So there you go. Oh, so it opens up oh. that parking lot across the street, which Park Hill does have some of those, where yeah. the parking lot is across the street. Yes. Well, actually, it wouldn't. Sorry. But it because would because it's more than 5,000 yeah. square feet. And it's a corner. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you. So um, I just had one question relating back to something that you, you mentioned in the um, and talking about sort of the scalability of the existing solutions that we have and how many people are left in the gap. And um, I, I commend this effort. I'm really glad that we're making this uh, permanent feature um, of having the flexibility to do this in a temporary fashion. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem like zoning is the biggest limiter to scaling this particular piece of the solution. I just wanted to confirm, it kind of sounded, Holly, like you were saying that that securing the, the right parcels or finding willing landowners, is that the limiting factor? Or is it the funding buckets? Like what is the primary thing that is preventing this from being Let me say one thing real quick. It is the limiting factor if it goes away. Correct. Then there's no system. So, but then go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we, um, yes, if, the, if this goes away at the end of this year, we have funded these um, operations through uh, 2024 currently um, with the budget that was approved um, last year, getting my budget years all mixed up. Um, but yeah, I, finding spaces for these um, and really landowners and big enough spaces to make it worth the dollars to erect a site for six months to four years, depending on the availability of site, I think is probably the toughest part of, of these um, currently. Do we have any land available? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Thank you. Few comments. Um, like like Fred, I've been a long time supporter of these, and uh, love seeing this be made routine and more accessible. Um, I, I chaired a meeting of interneighborhood cooperation where we were taking lessons learned from um, Capitol Hill above Colfax, and the neighbors there talking about their experience living near the safe outdoor space and doing that at around the same time that you know, Park Hill were you know, contemplating their their reaction to that proposal. And it was a very difficult process, very exception-based process. So this leads me to my question. I want to check my understanding from a zoning use table perspective, not looking at this being a zoning permit with special exception that needs a public hearing. It sounds like you're looking to capitalize on what was done in living with res, larger res care where it's a ZPCIM approach. That's fantastic. Um, and then th this is less about the text amendment and more about just thinking about what this might enable. We're in, of course, election season, and uh, all the candidates for mayor and many for city council are talking about this is one of the legitimately the biggest crisis of our, of our time. And um, some of those candidates are saying a very tactical near-term approach would be by whatever means they find the property, making it possible to manage camping or deliberate or permitted camping in, in large numbers rather than unstructured while we move people along the path. And for my imagination, well, Sometimes when I listen, living in my neighborhood, having been impacted by um, homelessness and uh, the side effects of people looking, you know, unsheltered people looking to get by. Sometimes I listen to them and say, I don't know what you have in mind. It could be good and it could be bad. And then today I'm saying, I hope they have this in mind. Is this is thinking ahead could this be setting the framework by which a new ex chief executive of the city comes in and says, we're gonna make this happen, here's the specific means by which, and then they'll go help find land and whatever else, but they won't have to invent, how do we manage this? How do we permit this? What, what does zoning do? This will be there soon. Am I connecting the it, dots? It already exists today, so they could just scale it up more, but Again, I, I, downplay the importance of it, 
but it really is not new. Yeah. We've been doing the tiny home villages first came up in 2015. Wow. Well, it's been a while. Okay, I, I know you have one more item. I just want to make sure if we have any last questions about the text. I, I want to explore then, Caitlin, the, again, the uh, the operating agreement. It sounds like, of course, that doesn't belong in zoning attached to uh, this and provide the, the kinds of things that would be in that, provided that the city is involved funding-wise, would live in the contracts involved in getting that funding. There's a hypothetical that they might not get funding with the city and therefore that that connection wouldn't be there, but in general, that's moving to contractual oversight with the city as part of an operating agreement with the city and funded operating agreement. Even if that scenario came to pass, so we got some shining money from the enforcement in, all the money in the world, and we'll set this up. The very least, we have um, a requirement that when they submit for a use permit for zoning, they have to show how they meet the definition of a managed community. And that's why we added those words to the definition. This is not KOA, this is not a commercial camping site. So you do need to prove up and show how you meet every word of that definition. Now we're not gonna force you to provide any list of specific services, but you have to show that it is managed. Um, so for example, our safe parking sites that we have in Denver are very lightly are only there at night. Um, some are engaged a little bit more uh, with helping people connect to services and some are not. It's just simply a safe place. But there is a sponsor and there is a responsible party who's there and is accountable for this. Not just the residents that you would Thanks. Uh, two really technical questions. Um, and Thank you for, the, for sort of just re-emphasizing that this is moving us from one to another, but not doing a lot of changes. Um, along with that, the temporary tiny home village that is in the code, is that remaining and this is in, in addition to, or does that get subsumed into the, um, the new managed care? I have that definition, your new definition. We've called it many things over the last few months, so we're always tripping up over the- Temporary um, managed community. Yes, Somewhere. over the term as well. The temporary managed community um, includes the temporary tiny home villages now. So that will not live on its own. Okay, thanks. And yeah. then um, the temporary tiny home villages don't have any separation or distance requirements. They don't get to, they don't really touch the same space as the residential care use spacing requirements. Um, and I, I guess I, I would want to understand and confirm, and hopefully this is the case, that that is similarly the, the case for temporary managed Correct. We are not introducing any kind of density restrictions on where this could be located in relation to the facility. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. So keep you. your eyes open for the draft text amendment. If you have feedback on it, I'm happy to take it. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good night. We are on to the last item on our agenda, which is an information item. Uh, the next area plan will be seen. And who do we have presenting it? Scott 
evening. Uh, my name is Scott Robinson. I am the project manager for the Near Southeast Area Plan and also the program manager for the Neighborhood Planning Initiative. Uh, so I'm going to give you an overview of where we are on the Near Southeast Area Plan today. Uh, so a brief introduction of what the Near Southeast Area Plan is. I'll talk about what we have done so far in the planning process, an overview of what we'll find in the draft plan, and then talk about what's coming up next, and then we'll have more questions and discussion. First, what is the Near Southeast Area Plan? It is a portion of the Neighborhood Planning Initiative uh, covering four and a half neighborhoods in Southeast Denver. Those neighborhoods are Washington, Virginia Vale, Virginia Village, Goldsmith, and University Hills, north of Yale Avenue. So that's roughly Alameda on the north, down to Yale on the south, and Colorado on the west to Quebec and the city boundary on the east. Also covers portions of three council districts, uh, districts four, five, and six. Council members Black, Sawyer, and Cashman have been heavily involved in this process. Uh, so just as a, a reminder for you all, these uh, neighborhood plans are part of our citywide planning efforts intended to create a shared vision with the community and identify strategies and policies for achieving those visions. Uh, so they're uh, policy documents, they aren't. Uh, implementation documents. They don't change them. They manage to establish budgets. And specifically, these neighborhood plans are intended to take citywide guidance from a variety of citywide plans and say, how should we be applying those in these uh, neighborhoods? Uh, and at the same time, they offer an opportunity to update those citywide plans, like the of Denver, uh, based on what we did in the neighborhoods. So uh, the plan so far. Uh, we kicked off the Near Southeast Area Plan in the summer of 2021 uh, with the understanding the area phase of the plan uh, that involves some existing conditions, research work that we did, as well as uh, community engagement, understand what the community liked and disliked about the community and what they wanted it to be like in the future. Uh, that helped us to create uh, vision statements that have been guiding, guiding the plan process uh, throughout. We took that information and those vision statements uh, and started to identify the issues that the plan needed to address in phase two and went back to the community and asked them, uh, are these the right issues and how should the plan be addressing these issues? And we took that feedback and started coming up with draft recommendations to address issues that the community had identified, uh, shared those back with the community in phase three in the summer of 2022 uh, through early fall. Got a lot of feedback on those draft recommendations, made updates and refinements to them, put them into a draft plan uh, that we shared with the community in November of last year. Uh, had that available for community review for a couple months, got a whole bunch of comments on that. I've made updates and improvements to that draft plan. Uh, and that's the version that you see in the packet. Uh, that is a revised draft plan for the New South East. Um, and now we are approaching getting into the adoption. I mentioned the existing conditions uh, that we did at the beginning that involved a lot of work uh, looking at existing data, put that together in a briefing book, as well as some other uh, existing conditions work that is all available on the plan website if you're interested in any of this background information. And then I mentioned uh, some of the engagement we did, but we've heard a lot from the community. We've got thousands of comments over the uh, year and a half, almost two years that we've been doing this now. Uh, been to a lot of community events um, and had pop-ups and uh, office hours and things like that. 
uh, as well as focus groups and uh, seven big community workshops, uh, some virtually on Zoom, some in person, and then also have gotten a lot of uh, interaction uh, through social media and uh, other online activities. We've also had a steering committee that uh, has been meeting monthly throughout this process, made up of members of the community and other stakeholders in the area. Uh, that has been a big help in guiding the engagement process as well as uh, refining the, the plan content and the recommendations. We've also had uh, an intentional engagement strategy. We know uh, there are folks who traditionally participate in these planning efforts and folks who do not. And so we wanted to make an extra effort to reach out to the folks that we know don't typically participate in plans like this or we know we're not hearing from uh, based on, on uh, feedback and uh, tracking demographics of who's been participating. Uh, so we've had community navigators that have helped us uh, make connections in the community. Uh, the biggest group that we noticed we hadn't been hearing from were renters in the area. So we've done some, several events uh, to get additional input from renters, the most successful of them is food truck events. Uh, also had focus groups with the immigrant and refugee community uh, surveys with minority-owned businesses, and then several events with students, especially at George Washington High School, where uh, we've gotten a chance to teach them a little bit about the planning process and get feedback from them about uh, their community and what they'd like to see. Also worked with a variety of partners in developing the plan uh, from neighboring governments like Arapahoe County and Glendale to nonprofits like Highline Conservancy and Urban Gardens to uh, neighborhood organizations in the area, all contributed. So during all of that, uh, we got, as I said, a whole bunch of feedback, uh, highlighting a few of the key takeaways uh, we heard from the community of what they would like to see in near Southeast, uh, include uh, directing the majority of the growth to specific areas like key intersections along the major corridors, uh, making sure that we get uh, affordability and uh, character preservation when we add new housing options in the neighborhoods, uh, making sure that the, those centers and corridors transition well into those neighborhoods so we don't create conflicts, uh, making sure we're getting affordable housing in appropriate areas, especially areas served by uh, existing amenities and transit, supporting uh, local businesses in the area, providing additional mobility connections, uh, both streets and uh, sidewalks and bike lanes, prioritizing sidewalk improvements uh, along key routes, uh, improving connections to trails and parks, uh, and then enhancing and improving landscaping uh, and improving sustainability. So those were overall some key takeaways that you'll see reflected in the recommendations in the plan. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, over the last couple of months, we've been gathering feedback on the draft plan itself. Uh, so we've made quite a few updates to the draft plan. You'll see some of those enumerated in the memo. Uh, but just wanted to highlight a few of those themes. One was clarifying and strengthening the missing middle recommendations that I'll talk more about in just a minute, uh, making some adjustments to the height recommendations, adding some uh, recommendations around transitions and uh, infrastructure needs for new growth, uh, strengthening our culture and education recommendations, adding more mobility safety and traffic calming recommendations, and also uh, strengthening our trail So now I'll give a, a brief overview of some of the key uh, elements of the plan itself. Uh, the plan is divided into eight chapters, uh, starting with in, in introduction, and then four topic chapters that uh, include uh, area-wide recommendations on those four topics that I'll go over in just a second. 
then a section of neighborhood recommendations. So there's a, a two pages for each neighborhood in near Southeast, uh, talking about some specific recommendations for each of those. Then we have focus areas and transformative projects uh, that we'll touch on as well on the implementation section. So in the introduction, you'll find uh, an executive summary that includes key themes of the plan. So this is really taking a high level view of, of what the plan is trying to accomplish um, and distilling it down to these three key themes. So the first one is trying to modernize and improve the centers and corridors in terms of uh, how they look and function. Uh, second one is around housing options and making sure that as we are adding new housing options, we're preserving the character that folks like and uh, promoting affordability. And then the third one is about uh, sustainability and making sure that as this area grows, it does so appropriately and sustainably and improves uh, the environment in the area. We also address equity. These are the equity concepts from uh, Blueprint Denver. Uh, and you'll find in the introduction uh, description of how this plan addresses each of these equity concepts and uh, advances uh, improvements in equity in the Southeast. And then another big topic uh, is sustainability. So I know I mentioned that themes, but this is something that really came up in uh, our conversations with the community and it's something that we highlighted in uh, memo that you have as well. That's a key policy. So in the introduction, we wanted to highlight again how the recommendations in the plan uh, address sustainability, climate action, and resilience, and making sure that that is a theme that's uh, highlighted throughout the plan as well. Now getting into the land use and built form recommendations, uh, the key ideas for that section are around thoughtful growth, so making sure that we are directing growth to those appropriate places, uh, and that it comes with the elements of a complete neighborhood and the infrastructure that is needed to support it, uh, that we are upgrading those centers and corridors in terms of appearance and functionality, and that we are making sure that the neighborhoods uh, still function the way people would like, that they preserve the things that people really like about their neighborhoods, uh, the affordability that you can still find in this part of Denver and the design, uh, while adding those additional housing options that we need to see throughout the city. So this is our land use framework map that uh, gives an idea of, of where some of those policies are going to be implemented. Uh, looking at those mobility and design improvements on the major corridors of Evans, Colorado, and Leedsdale. Uh, and that's also where we are directing the majority of growth in particular at key intersections along those corridors. Uh, and then in the residential areas, looking at areas that have been identified for preservation priority or uh, affordability or anti-displacement priority and where we can add more missing middle housing. So I'll talk more about each of those uh, in the coming slides. So this is our uh, future places map. So taking the, the places from Blueprint Denver and uh, making updates to that uh, based on these themes and ideas that we've uh, developed with the community. Uh, so again, you'll see the centers and corridors along those key streets of Evans, Colorado, and Leedsdale where we're directing the majority of the growth. Um, with that growth uh, comes uh, elements of a complete neighborhood. So uh, when we see additional growth in this area, we wanna make sure that it comes with things that support the neighborhood and benefit the residents, both the existing and new. Uh, so that's things like affordable housing that will be achieved through uh, things like the expanding housing affordability incentives, uh, and also things like additional open space through 
uh, sustainability and design, mobility improvements, things like that, that we want to see with additional growth. Uh, managing those transitions, so making sure that things are designed well, and also including additional areas of a low medium residential to serve as a transition and buffer from these corridors into existing neighborhoods. Design improvements on those uh, centers and corridors. Uh, a lot of that will come from getting the right zoning in place. Uh, a lot of these properties have either old code, former chapter 59 zoning, or industrial zoning, or other inappropriate zoning. So we can make a big improvement just by getting these uh, properties into the correct zone districts in the Denver zoning code, uh, and then uh, eventually making even more improvements uh, either through design standards and guidelines or further updates to the, the zoning code to make, make better design outcomes uh, in our centers and corridors. And then a big idea uh, that we've been working on is making sure that we have the infrastructure in place to support this additional growth. Uh, so we have a lot of recommendations uh, throughout the plan about the types of infrastructure we can see and how we need to achieve that. Uh, but we also want to make sure that we're not getting ahead of that infrastructure with our growth. So in these centers and corridors, uh, we want to make sure that as uh, additional density comes in, additional uh, intensity comes in, that we do an analysis to make sure that we are getting or have the infrastructure in place to support that uh, at the same time that it comes in and before it comes in. Uh, and this is an area where uh, you all gave us a lot of feedback when we last came to you last year. Uh, so, uh, as, well, as well as with the community, this is also uh, something that's been shaped by the input from the planning board at our uh, info item last May, I believe. Uh, so, going along with the places map, these are the height, future height maps. So, on the left is the base height map, and on the right is the set of height map. Uh, so, that is dealing with those expanding housing affordability incentives. Uh, so I think as you're familiar with, uh, within our zoning code now, if uh, a development provides additional affordable housing beyond what is required, uh, they can be eligible for height incentive increases. Uh, so we wanted to be clear with the community of what the future heights could be. So that's why I have, we have two maps here showing what the base heights uh, are and then what the uh, incentive heights could be if properties took advantage of that DHA incentive. So again, you'll see uh, the majority of the height directed to those centers and corridors, especially Colorado Station uh, there at Evans and Colorado back in I-25 where the Colorado Station light rail stop is. Uh, that's where the most height is and then uh, sort of tapering down along Colorado to 12, eight and five stories, uh, tapering down to eight and five stories going uh, east on Evans and then a mixture of three and five stories along uh, Leedsdale again, as the, the base heights, and then you see on the right what the incentives are. Uh, a few things I wanted to point out on this map. One is there is, uh, what you'll see is the industrial area in Indian Creek, um, whatever we're recommending, uh, a portion of that be innovation flex and a portion of that uh, remain value manufacturing. For that value manufacturing, for that value manufacturing section, uh, the Intended future zoning for that is something like IA, which does not have height limits. It's purely an FAR based zone district. Uh, so, again, we just wanted to be transparent about that, recognize that the appropriate zoning for this area wouldn't have height limits. We didn't want to create, create a false expectation that it would be five stories or something. Even though we don't expect uh, something in IA to develop that fault, uh, we just wanted to be clear. Uh, 
And the other thing is you'll notice uh, a whole bunch of black outlines. Those are areas where we are recommending changes from the existing zoning height. A lot of those are, again, those old code zone districts, those industrial zone districts that don't have height limits. They're, again, FAR-based uh, zoning. So uh, we are, for the first time, applying height limits in there. So that's why it's a change. So no height limit to uh, some height limit. Uh, but on most of those properties, uh, the amount of development you could do is actually increasing. So we are, in theory, reducing the maximum height. Because again, those are FAR based. A lot of them are like one point FAR, even if there's no height limit, going to a three story or a five story MX zone district would allow additional development over areas. Uh, there is sort of one area where we are actually reducing heights, reducing sort of in the center of the University Hills neighborhood there on the bottom left around the Denver Academy campus. Uh, and that's part of our strategy of where we're directing growth. Uh, there is some zoning in that area that allows much taller heights that we think is appropriate based on this. And since we want to direct that growth north towards Colorado Station or on the Colorado or on the Evans, uh, we think it's appropriate to reduce heights in that area. We have uh, plenty of growth opportunities elsewhere. Now getting into the uh, policies for the residential low areas, uh, a big part of this is how we can improve design outcomes in uh, SU and TU zone districts in the residential low areas. Uh, so we want to make sure that uh, as properties uh, have or houses that have additions put on or scrapes and rebuilds happen, that they come in at appropriate scale for that neighborhood. Right now, zoning allows uh, much bigger houses than find in those neighborhoods and it creates uh, out of scale conditions and it also uh, creates affordability problems and encourages uh, displacement uh, by having additional uh, development capacity on those, on those properties. So uh, a big recommendation is to uh, reduce the sort of scale of buildings on these uh, SUT zone properties uh, so that they fit in more and also help us achieve our, our preservation and affordability goals. Uh, so that should apply to all residential low areas. And then we've identified additional areas uh, that are preservation priority based on input from the Discover Denver survey, uh, historic context that we did at the beginning of the project, and input from community of areas that have uh, particularly valuable historic character. Uh, and in those areas, we want additional recommendations to help us preserve that character that people find valuable. And then we have uh, what we've identified as affordability priority areas. Those are areas that we think are particularly vulnerable to displacement based on our uh, vulnerability to displacement equity concept, and also looking at uh, property values relative to structure values. Uh, so those are determined areas that we think are, are particularly vulnerable to scrapes and displacement. And in those areas, we want additional policies to promote affordability uh, and present and prevent uh, involuntary displacement. So you'll find recommendations in the plan about how to achieve that. Uh, but part of that ties into our recommendations for adding uh, additional missing middle and particularly duplexes in these residential low areas. So we looked at uh, residential low areas and Try to determine where it would be appropriate to allow uh, duplexes or two-unit uh, development um, 
And that was mostly based on uh, the existing infrastructure. We wanted areas that had well-connected street grids, that had access to uh, bike facilities, that had uh, quality sidewalks that could support the additional that uh, Keyflex of enabled would allow. Uh, so we have recommendations around uh, how to uh, create a TU zone district for the suburban context that exist. Uh, and again, tie that into those design recommendations uh, that we were just talking about. And then where those duplex recommendations overlap with our affordability priority areas, we want to make sure that if uh, somebody takes advantage of that duplex zoning and adds a second unit, that one of the units is affordable to achieve our, our affordability and anti-displacement goals. And then in areas where they overlap with preservation priority, want to make sure that we are, again, incentivizing preservation. So uh, if, again, if somebody takes advantage of uh, adding a second unit, making sure that we are preserving the existing structure to help achieve uh, those goals as well. So those are the highlights of the land use and built forum recommendations. Uh, moving on to housing and economy. Uh, highlights here are improving uh, housing affordability and quality throughout the Southeast, uh, supporting local businesses, uh, both new and existing, and improving community resources uh, like education, workforce training, and services for uh, people experiencing homelessness. For mobility, the key ideas are uh, corridor improvements. Uh, again, those major streets that we talked about, Evans, Colorado, and Lutesdale, and also the, the other large streets around the area, uh, Quebec, Alameda, Yale, uh, Holly, things like that. We have recommendations for all of those corridors. Uh, improvements to pedestrian and bicycle safety so people can uh, more safely and easily walk or bike around the community. And neighborhood traffic calming, making sure that the cars driving through the residential neighborhoods are doing so at safe speeds. And again, folks walking or biking on those streets so safely. So here you'll see our mobility opportunities map. Uh, again, one of the key policies that we highlighted in the memo was this idea of balanced streets. So those major corridors that I was talking about, uh, making sure that we have uh, holistic recommendations for them on how to make them uh, these balanced corridors uh, that can support the appropriate modes uh, safely and efficiently. Also, the areas where we are uh, calling for future bus rapid transit improvements, uh, key intersections for safety improvements and uh, recommendations for what those should prioritize, whether that's uh, pedestrian safety or bicycle safety, uh, also identifying pedestrian and bicycle priority streets and updating those maps, and also mobility hubs, which are, are locations where uh, we want uh, multiple mobility options to come together and people can uh, move between those. So both serve by transit and also have access to bike facilities, uh, uh, things like electric bikes and, and scooters and things like that. So people can uh, move the community uh, with their preferred mode. And then the last uh, area-wide topic area is quality of life infrastructure. So that addresses uh, green space, landscaping, and recreation, making sure that we uh, get the appropriate uh, opportunities in the area and improve what exists. Uh, sustainability and resiliency, making sure that we are growing appropriately uh, and uh, helping to sustain our, our community and our environment, and then community well-being uh, that addresses safety improvements, 
access to food and health services. Uh, here you'll see the uh, quality of life infrastructure framework map uh, that identifies the areas where we need to improve park access, either by creating new parks or improving access to existing parks. Uh, some new trails we're calling for in the area. Uh, landscape priority areas, again, mostly along those major corridors, if that's Colorado and Eatsdale, uh, more trees and more landscaping. Green infrastructure priority areas, areas that are, are currently vulnerable to uh, localized flooding or other issues that we need to improve the green infrastructure in. And then contemporary parkways, which are some of the uh, streets that combine improvements with landscaping and green infrastructure with mobility. Uh, to be really community serving streets connecting to major destinations like parks. Uh, so you'll see a network of those recommended as well. So that was the uh, area wide topics. Uh, now I'm going to briefly go over some of the focus areas of transformative projects we've identified to get a sense of how those recommendations uh, should be implemented in specific areas of these topics. The first is. Colorado Station. This is looking uh, east. So Colorado itself is right there at the bottom of that image. Uh, the transit station is right there in the middle, I-25 running at an angle. Uh, so this is a potential future development of Colorado Station. Uh, you'll notice the north side looks more or less like it does today. The south side is increasing with the change. Uh, and so that is contingent on getting the existing RTD parking into a structure and also uh, implementing a connected street grid within the, the area uh, so that people can move easily within the Colorado Station area and also uh, extending beyond that so people can easily get to Colorado Station. That's a, another thing we've heard a lot of is people struggle to get to the station today. Uh, the next one is Yale Station. Uh, so that's Yale going across the bottom line itself there, sort of on the left. Uh, big idea here is improving the connections across I-25, uh, again, so that people can more easily get to the station and also so that we can integrate the development on the east side of I-25 into the broader station area to give us more of a, uh, a cohesive uh, TOD opportunity at uh, the station. Third one is at Evans and Monaco. So that's Monaco running up and down, Evans running uh, east and west there. Um, big ideas here are, again, implementing a street grid. So again, an organization for development and improved connections uh, to and through the area, and also uh, landscape and green infrastructure. So Goldsmith Gulch runs through this area. Uh, we ultimately like to have that daylighted uh, so it serves a better green infrastructure function and also extend the Goldsmith Village Trail through this area all the way up to Cook Park and Cherry Creek. The fourth one is Leedsdale at Monaco. Uh, so again, Monaco running up and down Leedsdale at an angle. Big ideas here are mostly around uh, mobility improvements. Again, implementing a street grid to help uh, connections and improve development outcomes and also safety connections across uh, Leedsdale, especially for the students getting to George Washington High School there. Uh, it's a big concern uh, crossing a busy street like Leedsdale and, and making sure that we can do that uh, safely and efficiently. And then final one is what we call the Indian Creek Industrial Area. That area that I pointed out earlier uh, in Indian Creek. 
Creek, where we are, are recommending the innovation flex and uh, value manufacturing place types. Um, so for the, the value manufacturing, that is where waste transfer facility is today. And we don't expect that to go anywhere anytime soon. So looking for opportunities to make that fit in better with the community and be more of a community asset. And then for the innovation flex areas, uh, looking at how we can see that evolve to include more uses and better connect that to Cherry Creek and the Greenway there, uh, which has seen uh, recent improvements uh, with the trail and uh, water management in the area. So making sure that folks have easy access to that uh, and it can be a real amenity for this part of the Southeast. So uh, that was a quick overview of uh, some of the topics in the plan. There's a whole bunch more in there. Document. Uh, so let me just briefly talk about what's coming up next and then we'll the discussion. Uh, so obviously our info item today, uh, there's a, uh, a new public or a new draft uh, that we've all looked at is also up on the website for community review. Uh, so we're taking feedback on that through about March 26th. Uh, we'll take uh, that feedback uh, from the community. We all uh, make further updates to the draft plan. I take that to our final steering committee meeting. We're still trying to get scheduled for the uh, week of April 3rd. Um, and then that'll set us up for our hearing with you all scheduled for April 19th. Uh, following that, so we stay on schedule, uh, taking it to council for ultimate uh, adoption on May 27th. Fantastic. Thank you. So, uh, questions and discussion. You see Fred and Patricia. Thanks so much. Um, I, I've got a bunch of stuff. I'm going to go over it fairly cursorily, I hope, so that we don't spend forever. But I will offer that if you want to go in depth on any of it, please let me know. I'll be happy to do a Zoom or Teams with you to, to talk through it. Um, you know, one question that, that you touched on ever so briefly is I'm just curious how closely you really did coordinate with Glendale and Arapahoe County, given the embedded nature of some of those profit lands. Yeah, so Arapahoe County has been a great partner. Uh, I have a standing bi-month meeting with the planners of Arapahoe County. Um, so we're going to coordinate on that. Uh, Glendale has been harder to work with. Uh, <laughs> I have one meeting with them. We reached out multiple times trying to get further from them. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, Arapahoe County has been a great partner. Fair enough, thank you. Um, you know, on page 10 where you talk about rezonings, uh, and this waterfalls throughout the plan in a number of different ways, but that language about um, rezoning should be evaluated to determine if they're better suited for an area-wide rezoning or if they should not be found consistent with this plan until after additional infrastructure is in place. And, and that, as I say, that waterfalls throughout the plan in a number of different places. And I just want to express the concern that this puts us on a path where we have applica applications which meet future guidance, but we've refused to put them through because the time isn't right. And I, I worry about that sidelining private investments, which actually helps drive the changes that we're hoping to see. It puts so much dependent on planning services staff capacity that I really do worry about that. So I just want to express that concern and I'll, I've got it in a few other places in here. Um, the wording of LU8, I, I think you should consider rewording that. I read that at first and it was only where it comes later in the plan becomes clear. 
it's provide additional housing options, promote preservation and prevent involuntary displacement in residential low places by allowing duplexes and accessory dwelling units in appropriate locations and under appropriate conditions. And as we read deeper in the plan, that appropriate locations and under appropriate conditions really only applies to duplexes, not to ADUs, but it's not apparent from that first wording. So I suggest that you consider rewording it to, you know, along the lines of by allowing duplexes in appropriate locations and under appropriate conditions and accessory dwelling units throughout the area, the plan area, just as a, a feedback. Um, I really appreciate the goal to reinvigorate and beautify Evans. Uh, I grew up in this plan area in Crescenta Park and ranged throughout it on a bicycle. Evans has sucked since I was a kid. Um, and I guess I worry a bit about seeing that in Leedsdale both remaining in a suburban context. I'm a little bit um, reassured by discussion later on about eliminating the suburban commercial corridor zoning, but I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Um, and I'll talk about that more in a second too. Um, yeah, you know, under LU1 where you start to get into um, talking about all rezoning going through a large development review process or an equivalent. And again, I worry very much about what that might really entail. There's a little bit of something about proposed rezonings with minimal infrastructure impact may be determined not to require a large development framework. You know, I think one of the issues that we've identified right now citywide is how long it takes to get through any kind of development process. And I also think it, one of the things that we've seen is that there's a lot of public complaint about seeing just big buildings and big assemblages done. I worry that a requirement like this makes it more challenging for small development to happen. And so we see, we're just gonna see more Lennars doing the big boxes that they do if we're not very careful about this kind of thing. You know, the more, the more barriers we put on small, small developers, the more they're gonna say, we, it just isn't, doesn't work. Let Lennar assemble the whole block and build a big apartment building because they can get through it and they'll, they'll hire a big law firm to deal with it and you know, that's fine. Um, you know, C under that same policy, uh, consider appropriate tools for implementing and financing infrastructure and public realm improvements, such as development impact fees, cost recovery districts, tax and financing. And that seems to be a significant change to how we generally do things in Denver in terms of requiring right of way improvements. And I, I guess, you know, one of the things to consider is this a citywide recommendation or are we proposing that development in this NPI area would be different than other areas? And I think the implications of that are, are possibly fairly significant. You know, at the same time, we're looking at things like the Nexus study that Dottie's working on. How does that interface with that? And to some extent, does this conflict with some of the things that we talk about making it easier and getting, getting some of that housing out there? I had a specific reference to HE8. Um, similarly, under that same uh, land use uh, piece D, ensure new development while quality design rezonings that allow additional height should not be found consistent with the strategy until design recommendations have been implemented unless other significant community goals are being accomplished through the development. And again, this same thing as I mentioned earlier, really putting 
future development at the hands of planning services priorities and capacities, which can change with administrations, which can change with all kinds of things. And I, I just worry about that, that we're gonna put a damper on things like multifamily housing construction, where we've said that that's a real priority by saying, well, we're not ready for it yet here because we haven't done the, the work and you know we, we can't get to that. So I'm, I'm really concerned about that. And I'm also concerned about the risk of challenges to a rezoning, for instance, that gets refused on that basis because we've maybe set an impossible standard for somebody to meet because it's not a standard they can meet. They just have to wait for the city to do the work. And well, we don't have the time to do the work yet, come back to us. So I, I wonder if, if there's any jeopardy for the city there in terms of challenges to a zoning that doesn't go through. Um, and I think that some of our, some of the what's in there, you know, E, encouraging us to do stuff might conflict with some of that and plan guidance. Um, on the height maps, as a small note, the, the heights with incentives, again, I, I'm not sure that they reflect proximity to protected districts. And I, I still think that that would be a wise thing to do on those maps because where they're, they're directly adjacent to an SU, we know that they're not gonna necessarily have the same possibilities on five story, et cetera. That makes sense. Yeah, and we, you know, I know that was an issue on West, we talked about it, and there are reasons why we haven't done that, and I have to talk more about that. Right. Um, as again with West, I think we're proposing potentially some citywide changes to zoning code and more. And I really worry that by burying them in a neighborhood plan, we might lose sight of some of that. Um, you know, there's the broader recommendations and learnings from, uh, for instance, LU2 is an example, the recommendation that commercial corridor zoning might not be appropriate here. I mean, that seems to almost be a broader recommendation that you guys are toying with, some of the duplex stuff as well. I'd love to see as part of the NPI process, a way for those broader pieces that you're learning that are really have citywide applicability to be elevated out so that we don't lose them. Um, and so that the public doesn't lose them. I, you know, I, I understand that there's an internal work list that you guys have. We're deep in the weeds and we don't have access to that. So the public certainly has no idea what's on there. So, uh, you know, I just would encourage that. Um, the zone lot split things I thought was, was really pretty interesting, again, as a potential citywide recommendation as well. You know, you're, you're toying with, in a way, a text amendment there that might allow a zone lot split by right without a, without a map amendment process in a way, which I think is very interesting, but again, seems to me to be much more than just a plan-wide thing that you're working on. And it's kind of buried there. I mean, it's 260 pages. A lot of us, you know, a lot of people other than us aren't gonna read it, I'm sure. Um, in the residential low design and preservation, uh, like the duplex stuff, I think that's, that's really some great stuff in there. Not always clear to me how that might work, for example, with the call to reducing allowed lot coverage. 
And it might be that the details are to be worked out, but I worry a little bit that in some cases we're getting to a level of specificity in this plan and starts to beg some of that, beg the question, um, are we putting so much in front in terms of prerequisites that some of that never happens? Um, you know, it's similar to the, the piece about allowing duplex, not disallowing duplexes on lots that have been split. That's where you get into a, a recommendation that's incredibly specific. And it, I worry about putting something like that in this sort of a plan, because I don't think we necessarily are in a position to know how all that's gonna play out. Does that make sense? Um, finally, it, as we talk about length, the repetition throughout, in a lot of cases, the individual strategies are repeated many times under different policies. And I just wonder from an organizational standpoint, if there's a way to better deal with that and, and help reduce the size of the plants to make them more user-friendly and manageable for folks. Um, LU8, I think is really interesting. And is it worth talking about being true to our form-based code? Um, that question of it's not how many people live there, it's how they how the forms fit within the neighborhood. Uh, so again, I think as you talk about that STU, I think you're almost positioning yourself for a larger citywide recommendation that's, that's really critical. Um, one final note is that as you make these recommendations for the corridors, and I think particularly about the Yale one, and you know, full disclosure, I have property along there, so I'm just very aware of the zonings along there, where we're starting to make some really significant recommendations for corridors, it seems that we ought to think about how plan recommendations might or might not apply to rezonings on the non-plan side of the street. Because I think we potentially end up with a situation where we've done some really interesting, exciting planning work that applies to one side of the street and the other side is, is kind of left hanging. We have no idea when that other side falls into an NPI process, do we end up with the development that we don't want happening because we ended at that side of the street? So some language about how to apply that across the street might, might be interesting to look at. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I'll just say on a couple of your comments that around the, the citywide recommendations, that yes, some of these are, are ideas that could eventually more citywide projects, and what we talked about is potentially using near southeast to pilot some of these ideas, test them out near southeast, or unfortunately near southeast, and then uh, expand them somewhere. I guess I have your hand up. Goshen, do you have something? Yes, please. Um, I hope to be brief. Um, on missing metal. So, um, two questions and a comment. I'm going to start with a comment. I, I'm concerned about that kind of a thread that I'm seeing across different plans and conversations about reducing development potential relative to missing metal, because everything I'm reading in reports to cities that did adopt missing metal, um, it exactly contradicts the intent. So uh, what um, they're saying, what the market is telling them that actually increasing um, development potential is, is conducive to missing metal and, and incentives for more smaller units as opposed to well, larger, fewer units. 
Um, that particularly, I think, is applicable to the recommendation that you're giving for duplexes, one, one unit as affordable. I just don't see if there's any market study um, has been done uh, that would support that that unit could be affordable and how that affordability would be implemented as a deed restriction. I don't know if you've given it any thoughts, uh, but I just don't see how market would deliver an affordable unit on a scale of just two units. There's, there's just, I, I just don't see it um, quite uh, that. Uh, and um, so, and then the, so the question was about market study, if you have analyzed it, but I'm just gonna run for the rest of my thoughts. Uh, last comment is uh, you define missing metal as two to 19 units, but um, we're really only addressing um, implementation of the two unit and duplexes. I did not see area in a plan where fourplexes or 19 units would be actually um, implemented. So um, I think there's just a little bit of disconnect between the definition and, and the implementation. Yeah, so we, uh, so to your first question, uh, we haven't done a market study on that. Uh, we're proposing the idea with the idea that a future implementation project. Looking at the preservation side of it and all that, figure out what the actual regulation programs we need to implement those are. Um, and then to your second comment around uh, missing the middle, yeah, we have a lot of recommendations around price investment and things that are coming from that. Uh, and then anything larger than that up to unit 19, because that 2 to 19 is what That would be handled in the residential low median places. Uh, and so we do have recommendations around that, uh, identify new residential low median places to accommodate that type of missing middle uh, and dividing that into uh, areas where sort of up to townhome density is appropriate and then up to where uh, small apartments are appropriate. Yeah, I would definitely encourage a market study sooner uh, before the adoption of the plan because Again, I think we're going in the wrong direction. And the lessons we're learning from like Portland, they are incentivizing up to eight units for affordability and I think six by right. So I think they've learned it through experimentation and market studies that that's kind of a right calibration. And, and two units is probably not enough. Yeah, that's where we need to be. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I will not echo things that I heard, but I hope they were very well said. Um, the one that I will echo is continue to please reach out to Glendale. I get it. <laughs> but it is a huge piece of this uh, and how those two cities meet is important. Um, and and I know there can be friction. So um, doing, doing something that's consistent, I think will be helpful. Um, on the future places map, I thought it was helpful when you had the kind of comparison do you have a comparison map of the future places map and what is being updated and changed? And that would be something that I'd like to see. When yeah. you showed the new future places map, I guess. Um, so again, anywhere with the black outline with proposed change in placement. In place type there too. Okay, thank you. Thanks, that answers that. Um, I guess I'd be curious if it's like a change in place type because this, I get the the other map is harder to understand in the sense that um, because a lot of this is old code, we don't see the easy like, oh, the density is going up, the density is going down, but I think you could in this one. Yep. Um, and so seeing 
is it ratcheting up or ticking down? Would be interesting to me um, here. Uh, okay. Um, uh, residential policy is the. This is an area with a lot of large lots. So really appreciate the attention to this. Um, very interested in the TU zone district for suburban context that you guys are exploring, and I think Fred articulated it well. Of, you know, bringing that uh, more broadly forward, um, kind of promoting those duplex policies without scrapes, um, and uh, I just um, really echo that this is a very car-heavy area. It is um, transit's not great, and, um, and I lived here in this neighborhood for ten years and loved it, but it, everybody drives. And so really appreciate the attention to mobility and pushing transit along Evans and Colorado and Lindsdale because in Holly and Monaco, because those are just, it's so hard. And I think it's gonna be a long time before you can get that conversion without the investments in infrastructure and the investments in transit. And I, and I agree though, we don't wanna sort of hold back on bringing more density because Evans is a tough street to solve. and. It's going to be infrastructure challenge for a long time, and I, I think it's a chicken or egg there a little. Um, and so sometimes, you know, bringing bringing better development can force that infrastructure to come too. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking us through it and for all of your your work on this. Um, I just have a, a few things that I wanted to dig into a little bit more. Um, I'm just curious with the residential low, and this may be from a bigger plan that, that this is sort of in, in the context of our city, talking about um, inappropriate for individual rezonings to allow duplexes, but may accommodate missing middle options following um, citywide missing middle implementation. Well, just with the, um, in the context of the other issues that we've heard tonight, it sounds like every neighborhood in the city wants to be that. So how, how do we distinguish that? And how is something not okay for an individual rezoning application, but is perfectly fine if, if you do it from a wide perspective? Yeah, I think, I think there's two things. Maybe some, maybe um, but the idea is that you don't want individual rezonings until we get these policies in place, whether it's the affordability okay. or the okay. preservation or even just the design improvements. So, we don't want people to see this plan and, and see that, uh, oh, it's saying duplexes are around and then they submit an application for those duplexes on there saying lot two units. We're saying don't do that until we get policies in place. Uh, and then if we're going to do that, we'll probably just go ahead and tell these areas instead of that requiring them to go ahead and make a decision at that time. So if we don't do that, but we do get the policies in place, then individual properties can go apply for these zones. Um, and then the other side of that is that I think as you all know that somewhere on the list of activities is a citywide missing middle project, right? So whenever that happens, eventually we don't want these recommendations and these policies to conflict with that. So the idea is that whatever the outcome of that is should also apply to this area and work with whatever gets implemented out of previous comments. So it's that we don't want people to say, oh, yeah, the citywide missing middle project shouldn't apply to near southeast because we have our own recommendations from the near southeast. Whatever the citywide solution is, it will also apply in 
Um, and then uh, I, I will just reinforce what, what Gosha said about the affordability requirement on duplexes. I think sometimes we work in a system where we're trying to make every, um, every housing tool the solution to solve every housing problem. And I don't think that's the case. So I think taking a purely, sometimes we need just a supply approach, which is something you'll rarely hear come out of my mouth. I work in affordable housing, I'm a huge <laughs> proponent of it, but sometimes it, it just is a matter of we need more. Um, so I would, I would encourage, you know, collectively to, to revisit that. Um, and then just sort of the, the last material thing, this kind of came up a few weeks ago when we had a conservation overlay application um, for, for a neighborhood in Northwest, um, where we were all kind of uncomfortable with it, with planning board, because it restricted what could happen there. And it was like, yeah, we're doing this, but if we, you know, upzone and, and allow more density, it'll change. And I, I just, I kind of think that we have that in the wrong order a little bit. And I think for as, as critical as housing is of an issue now in our city, like, once your upzoning's in place, then you can put design guidelines on is a much better way to achieve the goals that, that we need to from a citywide perspective. Um, I know that's a hard sell with neighbors, right. but. That, that's the, the concern, right? Yeah. So as soon as we open the taps, that things are gonna start to change. And so that's where the desire from the community and the council members is, we need to get the restrictions in place first so that we don't see that sudden change. And then we're trying to Work it back like we did in Slot Homes, right? Yeah. And nobody wants that now. And that makes sense to me. I guess then, you know, the, the suggestion or the middle ground there is to have them move in conjunction, yeah. you know? Right. And okay. yeah. Um, and then to Fred's point about the length, I would just like to propose that that planning board gets a week per 150 pages <laughs> in the plan <laughs> because I would have loved to have dived in deeper. Um, and then my, just my last question, I really love that, that um, we have incorporated a system to, to reach out to people who are underrepresented in the planning process. Um, I'm just curious though, I, you know, did, did we hit the, a representative demographic level of input in the plan based on those outreach? Because it's one thing to hold the outreach, but it's another thing to actually hear from people. Yeah, yeah, and we, you know, we don't, our goal is not to get a, a, a representative sample or statistically valid sample, right? We're, we're doing outreach to get, uh, to hear from as many people as we can and make sure that we're reaching out to the groups. So we have heard from groups that we know we weren't hearing from. Uh, you look at the numbers, they're still outweighed by the folks that participate through other methods. Uh, but we did, we think we got enough input from them that we got uh, a sense of this is just an editing comment and I know you guys are still working through it there are a lot of pages that are like just a picture and it's just a big and so I assume that's going to change and evolve and there will be more on it but to the like like you could incorporate those images into other pages there was just a number of those. And then the other was, I'm going to say it again, because I feel strongly about, um, I do not think that the uh, uh, incentive map should be included. I think we should talk about EHA and the, the fact that incentives exist. 
and they can learn more if they go to a certain website. But I think the incentive map gives an impression that there are that everybody's going to develop in that fashion, and I do not think that's the case. And the EHA is so early that we should just not be putting it in our plans. And I said it with, or putting a map in our plans. I said it with Vestarian Particularly if we're not going to limit based on proximity to protected areas, because that's such a, a huge limitation on those on those incentive heights. And I think the map then gives a very false idea of just how much potential there is for that height. So yes, we're, we're aligned. Great. Um, I had a few comments. First, I appreciate that one of the first things I turned to was, is this plan doing what Blueprint calls on in, in specifying what's meant by residential load? Where is it single unit? Where is it potentially two unit in this plan? Of course, that was a key focus. Um, uh, doing what Blueprint uh, called for in that regard, so thank you for that. And then secondly, I think it's the first plan that, um, uh, you know, if we go back to East and East Central, they said, they essentially copied and pasted the blueprint language saying um, we should do some missing middle and, and they didn't add any more clarity. Uh, West area plan uh, said we should do it in, in the text at least, said over here and over there, you have to read the text to pull that out. Uh, this plan has a map and the map has the horizontal lines. Now I have to say I'm not totally familiar with what the horizontal lines mean because they go through a lot of the areas that are single unit and of your, your varieties of potential duplex. And so how much guidance is this giving to where we can introduce um, things greater than duplex is unclear to me. And I know some of that is to be implemented at a citywide level, but maybe you can just give a little sense of what, what's the intention when the citywide missing middle comes along and it sees this guidance, how much and what kinds of missing middle in all those places that have the horizontal hashing? So the, the horizontal lines are everywhere where we're recommending duplexes or residential low medium price tags. Low medium. Yes. So that's sort of collectively allowing missing middle. Obviously, the higher intensity residential areas, but we expect that larger apartment buildings. Okay. Um, so that's really all that map is showing is information that's on this map or on this map. I guess the reason why I didn't figure that out is if you look at your future places map, it's the lightest shade of yellow around that area. So I'm not seeing the low medium. Right. So the, the it's there's still residential low. The duplex areas are still residential low. And then the residential low medium are where they could be more than duplex. So that could be the quadplexes that Gosha was talking about up to townhomes and, and small apartments. Okay. So there's there's actually fairly little that's recommended as low medium compared to uh, of the areas that have the horizontal hashing? Um, so there are, I mean, there are some decent sized chunks. So yeah, let's see my maps. Yeah. This is all the medium. A lot of Indian Creek is low medium. Uh, portions of Goldsmith are low medium. Not, not that central section. And then what jumps out off yes. the page when you're seeing this right. horizontal hashing, it says all the middle section. Right. Uh, the middle not. section of Virginia Village and Washington are remaining okay. residential low. With some of that still out. Okay, all right. So that's horizontal hashing is sometimes meaning one level and sometimes meaning Correct. another level. Yeah, it was intended to 
find the residual. Well, thank you for uh, tackling both those more than any other plan has done. Definitely appreciate that. I do have my concerns about the complexity that's being added with with what I imagine might play out as different types of TU zoning in suburban. One, you know, with these two different emphasis, three different emphasis, because there's, well, there's some sets of areas that are just should allow duplex, right. and it doesn't have one of the two emphases, and the other two with these emphases. So I, um, I worry about the complexity when it plays out, and and I'm reasonably familiar with truly suburban outside of Denver, uh, our surrounding community suburbans where they have just simply duplexes. So there's this recommendation of duplexes, but only in these very limited ways that I, I wonder if anyone would really do them. So if I'm using the same language that Mary and Gosha has at the market study, I, I think it's this question of would anybody really build that? Have we so limited it that we're recommending it, but not really? Um, and then to their points, um, if we, in the areas where affordability is the priority, you can only do the additional unit if it's gonna be restricted and affordable. Is that going to pencil for anybody? Right. So worry about that. Let me do one more nice topic, and then we'll get to the hard topic. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, so blue, so blueprint Denver gets updated by the updates to the future places map. We don't have that tight connection with the Denver moves plans, but yet we do talk about multimodal recommendations here, and because you spend a considerable amount of time with the public, the, they get really dialed in. Can you tell us about any recommendations to, like the bike network, that are recommended in this plan that are different than, and, and maybe update, maybe overstating how mechanical this is, but should update Denver Moves Bikes or similar? Yes. Um, yes, that happens or will happen. Um, that there are places where we are recommending new bike facilities that are not in the new spikes plan uh, and by adopting them in this plan and Off the top of my head, I know this one along exposition here is a new recommendation uh, for this plan that will go into the bike plan. Uh, I know there are several others that are there any high comfort, uh, kind of the higher level of um, bike facilities recommended at Denver Moves that are no longer recommended in this plan? Have any of those been dialed back in this? Well, let me turn to the hard topic. And, and, um, and, and this gets at what Fred was getting at is when I saw the infrastructure discussion, I started going, how do we operationalize this, right? This is a body that um, although we focus on planning, a lot of our time is spent on rezoning, making sure the rezoning is consistent with plans. And so I started asking myself, how does that, how's that going to work? And um, I, I think there's a big, I think there's a big concern here, and that the plan, the plan may be overreaching and, and contradicting not only blueprint, but contradicting our structure of how we do planning, zoning, and development. It's a great strength of Denver that we have these layers clearly distinguished from one another. When we're considering a rezoning, we're saying is the proposed rezoning consistent with our adopted plans? We're not asking about what you're going to build, et cetera, et cetera. And occasionally, of course, the public says, well, 
I'm, I'm concerned there might not be enough parking or there's traffic on the street. And those things get resolved at site plan review for, for larger developments if it is traffic steps there. But that happens at a later time. I am really concerned some of the recommendations of this plan are calling for blurring those lines, for saying, before you can get a rezoning, we need to know what you can build so we can evaluate the infrastructure to determine if you can get the rezoning. And you're nodding your head and it's freaking me out, right? Um, I, I, I don't think a small area plan can do that, right? And, and I'm just gonna finish what I'm saying and let you react because you've been thinking about this for a long time and I've been thinking about this for one week. Um, I can see specific tangible gates that would be a way to do this, to say, for instance, like some of your recommendations, these forms are not available or, or rezoning to allow this is not available until a design overlay has been finished, right? That's great. You know, that gate has been passed. Now this is available. It doesn't change fundamentally the, the three tiers that I'm talking about. It doesn't intermingle. It just says this land use recommendation becomes available after this becomes true in the world. But, but tell me about, am I overstating this? Because I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned. I think it's a, a good question. And it is, as you said, something that we've been working through over the last few months trying to figure out exactly that question of how would we operationalize this? How would this actually work? Um, and that, that recommendation has varied in length over the last few months from two sentences to two pages, as we've talked about what is the correct level of, of detail and direction to put the plan, uh, what are the correct tools that we should be recommending to the professionals. Uh, and so it, it, uh, the way it is worded now is relying on the LDR as that tool. It's a tool we already have that does some of what you're already concerned about, right? The, it, it is triggered for five acres and above. Right, or if a plan calls for <coughs> So by saying that any development that meets these criteria, which is increases in height in centers and corridors, so it's not every rezoning in areas, just where folks are requesting additional height um, in the centers and corridors, um, that, that should go through the LDR process and then to get to the threats concern, that the language that you cited of uh, it may be determined that you know the is not required to kind of catch those small developments that aren't going to have an impact that would otherwise get stopped. Um, but the LDR process already does a little bit of this of, of starting to look at what is actually proposed for development before we get to the zoning stage, right? And so we're just using that tool in a broader sense. In some areas, or in some ways, sensitive, it is applying to smaller sites potentially, more sites, but also in a more narrow sense that we're really only looking at the infrastructure for this question. Uh, obviously, the LDR will, will do the full LDR uh, if it's required. Um, but the question we're trying to ask here is the, the infrastructure mobility, mobility infrastructure, uh, and is that in place, or will it be in place uh, at the time of? 
this is a, a major concern we've heard from the community and from council members that uh, the mobility network in this area is insufficient. That relies too much on people driving on these major corridors. There aren't uh, connections off of or parallel to these corridors. Uh, there aren't sidewalks along these corridors. There aren't bike lanes along these corridors. And so uh, their concern is that it is uh, inappropriate to allow significant additional development in these areas and continue to have that stuff in place. Uh, and again, to get to some of the stuff Craig was talking about, that we would like to get that just in place anyway, not rely on development to do that. So these are other tools, TIF, uh, cost recovery districts, things like that, that we, if we can come in and fix or improve Evans uh, over the next few years so that it has sidewalks, it has um, uh, bus stops, it has safe crossings. Uh, and then as redevelopment occurs, we can get those parallel connections, those connections to the neighborhood um, that the site's developer would need that right away. We can get it with development. And so we're not relying on the actual development to provide the majority of that infrastructure. But it is, it is potentially saying that if we're not in that situation, um, somebody may be required to build that, or you know, it may be off-site stuff that they wouldn't even normally be required to build, and so it may actually stop something else. But you've got to have the project designed where you can figure out the trip generation that, that figures out, and then, and then somebody's professional opinion about adding those trips to Colorado Boulevard it will work or won't, which of course is absurd because this is water and it, it won't, it'll, it'll only flow at the rate it can flow and people will figure out changing their time of day for their trips. Right, and it's, it, it's less about your trip generation, right? Okay. That's not what we're interested in. Okay. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, figuring out what the capacity, the carrying capacity of that is, is, is a, not something we can really do because there are alternative uh, routes. Uh, There's very general language used here, infrastructure. Right. So I started thinking about trip generation. Right. All, all so it's it's about getting, it's really about getting the, uh, the street network in place uh, where we don't have it and getting pedestrian and bike things in place and uh, access to transit. Because we're not, not going to be widening Evans, right? It's not. Not a matter of we can't allow development until Evans goes to, to three lanes in each way because we're not recommending that. Well, let, let me just kind of say one more thing and then, and then ask you where, where we should go with this. So, yep. Denver Moves Transit and, and Blueprint Denver identifies Colorado Boulevard as one of our main BRT investments. But we all know that Colorado Boulevard, unlike federal, um, is very space constrained in a lot of areas, even though. Our Department of Highways has repeatedly widened it up to the point where there's no sidewalks. Right? It's still, it's still at its limits. So, when we kick off BRT discussions, which you know, prioritizing transit, not just having transit, it's got actually a lot of transit in Carlo Boulevard. But when we kick off prioritizing it with BRT, it's going to be a long struggle discussion about trade-offs. Coming down to this plan, and Carter Boulevard's wider in this area. I think a lot about the northern stretches. It's pretty wide here, but um, I would prefer 
to not see the conflict between Uber and Denver saying the next 20 years worth of work for largely directing the centers of borders, and having this plan say, yeah, we can direct growth to these major corridors, but not now, and maybe not for 20 years, because this BRT, BRT discussion can take a long time to realize. So again, uh, I want to understand if this plan is saying we're stepping up on our corridors to do what Blueprint is calling us to do, but not now and not anytime soon. Uh, it is saying it doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily contingent on giving BRT coverage. Um, but I think to some extent it is saying not now and hopefully soon, but it depends on specific development and also what other investments in the city. This, this is the question I want to leave you with. So we've got this as our, our one um, info item. And the next time this is planned to come back to my board is, is the public hearing. But in a more detailed way than I have, Fred has pointed out a lot of things that are similar to what I'm wrestling with. How would you propose we work with you either to figure out that we just weren't understanding something that may just be clarification of language, or perhaps there could be some modifications so that the intent shines through clearer before we get to the public hearing. How can we do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to speak with each of you uh, about this, answer your questions, and try to find solutions. Um, I don't know if we have room on say, the first April meeting that we can come back and have a briefer discussion about specific issues with the larger group. Yeah, it's unfortunate we've got a lighter attendance tonight. That's unfortunate, but I'm, I'm glad we're having this discussion. How about I follow up? You, me, and Fred. I'll always keep Andrew in the loop, and we'll see if we can yeah. go through this in more depth. Thank you. Just you know, two things to add. I think you know, Joel's point is is really spot on, and, and articulating some further articulating some of what I would raise. When I look at Leedsdale, for example, I mean Leedsdale is clearly just waiting for something to happen. But if we say it can't develop until there's some better transit infrastructure along there, from a transit standpoint, they're going to say, well, you don't have the, you don't have the population right. there. So it becomes, as Caitlin said, a chicken or the egg yep. where we're going to get stuck in a pattern. And, and I also, I do want to highlight, because I think that the change in administration is something that you have to look at and think, boy, if, if we get a mayor who comes in and says, build lots of housing, go, go, go. And we've got this area plan that says you can't do these rezonings until then. That means that basically we're going to be dumping all of the housing growth into areas that haven't had the benefit of, an, of a small area plan yet. And we're going to say, well, you can't do it in this area because the small area plan says that, but boy, that area, they haven't done it there yet. So off we go. And I just worry about the equity implications of that as well. And, and maybe it doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it. This area is not in the inverted L. And to, to the degree this says, we accept our density, but not now. That's a continuation of a pattern. And it's not Cherry Creek. It's not Country Club, this area, certainly. But it's also not the inverted L. It's somewhere in the midst there, and there is some affordability, and that's really important. But boy, if we saw over the next 
three years, an entire MPI area sheltered from taking on any growth when we're seeing it really pushed hard into other areas, there's some real equity concerns. So I, I just, boy, maybe the, the conversation is to think about ways to soften that language or leave more leeway because otherwise we're just shutting it down. And, and the next administration may say, our priorities get housing done. And no, you don't have, we're not gonna put resources toward design guidelines. We got other stuff to do. And so you guys might find that your next bosses saying, no, that's not a priority. And so it doesn't happen for however many years that we get those design guidelines in place that enable us to do those rezonings. So I just, I really worry about that. So I, I think we've put a marker down for where the concerns are. <laughs> Let's be sure we're following up with any planning board members. Always available to talk to staff on any topic that comes up. So on your own, please be reaching out. Providing comments. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. We have reached the end of our agenda. Manager chair time, any announcements? Uh, no announcements uh, other than just a reminder that at the next meeting on March 15th, uh, we'll be uh, asking the board to vote on the two new uh, exhibits to the bylaws that would establish the enhanced communications tools that we talked about in the last couple of meetings. Uh, and of course, we'll send out in advance the finalized draft language based on the integration back at uh, Thank you very much. We are adjourned. Thank you. vote for Denver Mountain Parks and overwhelmingly approve the mill levy in order to fund the mountain park system.
As soon as voters voted the funds to create the Denver Park System, park planners got to work. And in 1914, hired Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. out of Brookline, Massachusetts, whose father had been the chief architect of the White City in Chicago during the Columbian Exposition. Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., successor to his father's architectural legacy, developed large-scale plans for Denver's mountain parks and roads. Completed in 1914, Olmsted's vision would guide the city's developers for years to come and set the stage for regional open space planning in Colorado. The talents of several prominent Denver architects were enlisted to design the mountain park's buildings and structures. The Denver Mountain Parks are filled with examples of really iconic historic architecture. Jacques Benedict, Sacco de Boer, Fisher and Fisher, many of the shelters and well houses were designed by these famous Denver and Colorado architects. The Olmsted plan for the mountain parks was somewhat audacious in that he contemplated acquisition of over 40,000 acres of land. This, over a period of time, was not achieved. They achieved 10,000 in Jefferson County and 14,000 in total. The first parks in the Denver Mountain Park System was Genesee and Lookout Mountain. Genesee had been acquired earlier by Warwick Downing and a man named Pence and some others to protect it from being completely denuded by a logging operation. In August of 1913, when they opened it, those two were the first two, along with Lariat Loop Road that had been built up Lookout Mountain to access it. The first push for acquisition of properties was from the inception to about 1927. In the 1930s and 40s, the manager of Denver's parks and outdoor facilities was a man named George Cranmer, who really drove the park system and acquired Red Rocks Amphitheater and the Winter Park Ski Area, and really took the mountain park system to a whole new level, far beyond anything that even Spear and Walker had imagined in terms of recreational amenities. The Depression and then World War II really dried up the funds for this. By the 1940s and 1950s, the park system was again falling on hard times. Many of Colorado's most beloved landscapes are within the Denver Mountain Park System. Several of these iconic parks are designated historic places and draw millions of visitors to the Mile High City each year. Denverites might be surprised to learn that Red Rocks is a Denver Mountain Park acquired in 1928. It is world famous and attracts over one million visitors each year. But the history of many lesser known parks is noteworthy as well. Everyone in Jefferson County has to go through a Denver Mountain Park to get from any place to any place. And yet they don't know the names, Bergen Park, Phileas Park, Lookout Mountain, all of the parks along Bear Creek, Little Park, Corina Park, O'Fallon Park, Morrison, all of those parks are there. The only Denver Mountain Park in Douglas County, Daniels Park spans 1,000 acres of land donated in 1920 and 1937 by Florence Martin. The Florence Martin Historic Farm and Silo was the site of a 1920s working ranch and designated a Denver Landmark Historic District in 1994. The Tall Bull Memorial Site located at the north end of the park, preserves Native American heritage. The road that goes through Daniels Park is the old territorial road, and the southern end of which is where Kit Carson had his last campfire before he went down to Taos and passed away. 
Daniel's Park is now part of a bunch of properties that have been preserved and kept open for the future, but it gives a great opportunity to link up with the way the West was before people got here. The shelter there was a Jacques Benedict shelter built in the 1920s. The Taubeau Memorial area is dedicated to Indian people's reserve for Indian people's ceremonies and rituals. 70 acres for their ceremonies, in fact. Next to the breathtaking 100-mile views, the biggest attraction at Daniels Park are the bison. The bison that are there are worked in collaboration with the Genesee herd which is the descendants of the last free-ranging herds from Yellowstone, acquired in about 1919. The Dedes Park is one of the fun ones because it contains the Evergreen Lake. Most people think that the Evergreen Lake is uh, an Evergreen or a Jefferson County property, but it's really a Denver property. Homesteaded in the late 1860s by French immigrants Julius and Marianne Dedes, the 400-acre ranch remained in the family until the city of Denver purchased it in 1919. The 65-acre Evergreen Lake was man-made, originally formed from a flood-controlled dam built in 1926. Once known as Mirror of the Mountains Parks, Evergreen Lake has drawn boating, fishing, and ice skating enthusiasts for decades. Really what happened was that they built it so that the citizens of Denver could come up and ice skate. Basically since from 35 until he stopped being director of parks and improvement in 1947, George Cranmer set out to just basically improve the mountain park system. He developed Evergreen Park with the, the lake there. He was, a, he was an avid outdoorsman. He wasn't much of a skier but he loved the outdoors, in particular ice skating. One of the things that they built in there on the south side of the lake was a warming house so that the people could come and ice skate and have a place to rent skates and drink hot cocoa and all that sort of stuff. Part of the Dedes property was the land upstream on Bear Creek, which is now the Evergreen Golf Course. One of the partners in the Denver Mountain Parks has been the State Historical Fund, which has provided money for the restoration of important architectural features in the mountain parks. The Denver Mountain Parks were so popular in the teens that it became clear they were going to need to expand the system. Part of that included the building of a road up Squaw Pass and up to what is now called Echo Lake. The parks were designed with the recognition of automobiles as ways in which people encounter nature. Mount Evans is a really great testament to the importance of, of getting automobile access to different parts of the Rocky Mountains. The road to the top of Mount Evans was the earliest and highest paved road in the nation when it was initially built. Taking a car up to the top of Mount Evans got you to the closest 14er to Denver and gave you a view of the whole front range of the Rocky Mountains. Towering over Denver's front range, Mount Evans was named after John Evans, Colorado's second territorial governor. The built environment of the mountain park system is a testament to the vision and ingenuity of its designers. From the automobile roads to the buildings that blend in with nature. That's one of the achievements of the architects of the Denver Mountain Park System is that they were using local materials to build sympathetic architecture that felt like it was a natural extension of the parks themselves. And a really great example of that is the Crest House on the top of Mount Evans this stone building that was used as an observatory, a place for tourists to stop, you could eat, there was a gift shop there. And the building itself was made out of stone and it looked like it was built straight out of the peak of the mountain. 
The Crest House was constructed in 1940 and 41. The architect was Edwin Francis from Denver, and the builder was Justice Rowling from Kittredge. It was his crown jewel. He called it his castle in the sky. The Crest House was the highest business structure in the United States, 14,260 feet to be exact. Using granite quarried on site, the futuristic design was intended to evoke the heavenly realms. It was built with the idea of the moon and the stars, so the windows for the coffee shop and the upstairs observatory part of the building represented the stars, and then the lights in the gift shop were globes, big globes, and they were the moons. It looks like it belonged there. In 1956, my grandmother, Helen Stewart, bought the Crest House, and we ran it as a souvenir shop and coffee shop. Barbara Day's family has managed concessions at several Denver mountain parks for generations, including the Crest House. With its spectacular views and famous fried donuts, this was a popular tourist destination until tragedy struck in 1979. 1979, Labor Day weekend, when the propane fire destroyed the Crest House. So my brother was the manager up there, and he got everybody out safely, and lucky for us, no one got hurt. Only the stone ruins of this architectural treasure remain today. After the Crest House burned down, Echo Lake Lodge at 10,600 feet became the primary stop for tourists visiting Mount Evans. The Echo Lake Lodge was built in 1926. The lodge was built as a place to house tourists and to enjoy that lake, which is a glacially formed lake. And it's very scenic and wonderful. There are some stone shelters there at the lake. We work closely with the city of Denver to preserve and protect the Echo Lake Lodge. They put their share of time and money into it, as do we. There is also another stone shelter up on Mount Evans, further up on that road, a 160-acre park called Summit Lake Park, where the mountain goats like to hang out. Some lakes are so high, they're suitable for ice skating 11 months out of the year. Summit Lake, shown here, is more than two and a half miles above the sea. Winter Park was the last of the Denver Mountain Parks to be added to the system. It also has a rich legacy of being one of the oldest continuously running ski resorts in Colorado and the fourth largest ski area in the state. Because of our proximity to the Front Range, we've always kind of been Denver's ski area. And that history of being owned by the city of Denver, generations have grown up skiing Winter Park. The ski industry that we know it today was really started by George Cranmer in the late 30s. Cranmer was visionary enough to actually realize that what Denver really needed was a ski area. And in 1939, he began the process of purchasing what became Winter Park. It was the last piece of the Denver Mountain Park puzzle. George Cranmer was a really interesting guy. He was from Colorado, but he was educated in Princeton and then came back and had an investment brokerage firm in Denver and retired as a very, very wealthy man in his early 50s, working with a group of wealthy businessmen who are passionate about skiing in Denver, a group called the Arlberg Club. Kramer was able to somehow procure $14,700 from this private club so he can build this park. 
And he goes and he gets grant money from the federal government and he gets the CCC and the WPA to help work on trails and installation of equipment. And that is the beginning of Winter Park. In 1939, they started building tows. Right actually behind us is where the first rope tow at Winter Park was built. And that was with all that money that Cramner was able to procure. A lot of the reason for Winter Park being located where it is is because of the ski train. The ski train runs every Saturday and Sunday. It only takes a couple of hours each way, so you can get in an entire day skiing and be back in Denver in time for dinner. And back then in the 30s and 40s and even the 50s, it was so important to have that train connection to Denver. The original buildings of Winter Park, they were left over from West Portal, the construction of the tunnel, are all gone today. The historic structure that does exist at Winter Park is the Balcony House. And it was built in 1955, predates the first ski lift at Winter Park, and remains pretty much unchanged today. Winter Park is a place that has given the ski industry many innovations over the years. Slope grooming was actually invented at Winter Park. A pilot would basically tow this gigantic rotary device behind it. And what that would do is that would smooth out the run and basically groom it. Another historic innovation of this Denver Mountain Park is the establishment of the National Sports Center for the Disabled, headquartered at Winter Park since 1970. Part of what makes Winter Park special is that from day one in 1940 to today, there's always been an emphasis on preserving the land. The slopes at the, at the base area are just as they were in 1940. The buildings here date back decades. And that's important because you want to preserve that heritage. And that's really, really important to, to everybody here at Winter Park. While there are 22 developed Denver Mountain Parks in the system, there are also 24 conservation areas that were part of Olmsted's master plan. Lands set aside to preserve and safeguard the scenic quality of Colorado's landscapes. They are mountain ridges, rocky outcrops, and animal habitats, and include parts of Mount Falcon, Bergen Park, and Deer Creek, to name a few. As we continue to grow and population continues to swell here in Denver, having these natural places that people can, can come and enjoy what Colorado is all about is really, really important. The truth is, is that Denver mountain parks are, are very often loved to death. Millions of people visit Denver's mountain parks each year. And Denver city planners are faced with the same dilemma that Mayor Sphere faced 110 years ago which was, how do you pay for this? How do you maintain this structure? Denver's gonna keep growing until we figure out what our natural limits are. And that means there's gonna be more and more strain on Denver's mountain parks. And that makes preserving them all the more important because this is really the snapshot of what life was like in Colorado in the 1920s or the 1880s in some cases. And that's the paradox of, of preservation in a, in a mountain landscape is, how do you preserve the very thing that people flock to see? In the 1950s, the mountain parks were funded from the general fund in direct competition with the urban park system. 
And so when funding declined for the mountain park system in the 1950s, some of it was ultimately restored by a private organization called the Denver Mountain Parks Foundation. With a history of funding challenges and Denver's population on the rise, the need to maintain and preserve the Denver mountain parks is more critical than ever. The Denver Mountain Park's future for the city is one of restoration, but also of programming, not only of recreation, but of education. Part of the great driving force for the people who support the Denver Mountain Parks is that they are places to learn. They are places to, to see a world beyond yourself. Although no longer operated by the city of Denver, Modern Day Winter Park is still Denver's Winter Park. Of all of our visitation, 60% comes from the Front Range. The other 40% comes from other places throughout the, the country and the world. Even today, we're still owned by the city and county of Denver. We're operated by another company, but we're still owned by Denver. Always have been, always will be. In 2002, the city basically entered into an operating agreement with a company called IntraWest. And per that agreement, Interwest every year gives $2 million back to the city of Denver, plus 3% of all profit in excess of $33 million. And what Denver does then from there is they reapply that money into some of their city parks. The Denver Mountain Park System is uh, this really great sort of cross-section of cultural landscapes because Human activity has taken place in the Denver Mountain Parks for thousands of years. They are protected by the city charter and cannot be sold in part or in total without a vote of the people. The Denver Mountain Parks are loved and beloved and you can't really imagine Denver without them. But on the other hand, it requires vigilance and creativity in order to preserve these gems for future generations. We're the stewards of that vision of, of making sure that we have the right balance between our urban lives and the open spaces and the, and the access to nature that makes living in Colorado so unique. The Denver Elections Division is proud to make voting easy and accessible and to conduct accurate, secure, and transparent elections. You can register to vote right up to and on Election Day by visiting a voter service and polling center. Register to vote online with a valid Social Security number, Colorado driver's license, or Colorado ID card. Go to GoVoteColorado.gov 
and click Register Online. Then follow the steps and get registered in just a few minutes. Check out GoVoteColorado.gov for a list of acceptable forms of identification. Ballots are sent to all active Denver voters by mail 22 days before the last day to vote. Vote early and complete your ballot in the privacy and comfort of your own home. Follow the instructions included in your mail ballot packet. There are several options for returning your ballot. You can drop it in one of the many convenient, secure, 24-hour ballot drop-off boxes throughout the city. Bring your ballot to any voter service and polling center, use the drive through drop-off service, or simply mail it back. If returning your ballot by mail, it must be received by the Denver Elections Division by 7 p.m. on Election Day. Allow plenty of time for delivery. If your ballot is lost or damaged, request a replacement at a voter service and polling center or submit a request online for curbside ballot pickup. You can also choose to vote in person instead using a paper ballot or an accessible voting machine. Be sure to bring valid identification with you. To find a drop box and voting locations near you, go to denvervotes.org. Use the interactive map or see a full list of locations and hours. Make sure your address is current so you can receive your ballot in the mail. You can update your registration at GoVoteColorado.gov or by visiting a voter service and polling center. Voters can track the status of their ballot with ballot tracks, available through DenverVotes.org. Once you sign up for ballot tracks, you can choose to be notified by email or text when your ballot gets mailed to you, when the Elections Division receives it, and when it has been accepted for counting. Learn more about how to vote, where to vote, how ballots are processed, and more at denvervotes.org. And be sure to vote. Great. So we will start the meeting. We will still be allowing people to uh, to come into the meeting. Uh, we'll go over interpretation. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jesus Arante. I should have started with the introduction. I'm with uh, Denver Parks and Recreation, the community uh, engagement specialist. We have a couple other people from DPR that we'd like to recognize, Owen Wells. And then we have our PM from um, from Dottie, Ethan, who has been working on this process with us. Um, so we will be going over the final uh, concept design for DPR. 
and be able to uh, go, you know, be able to go through the process and explain what we went through and then uh, get some feedbacks on, uh, on that. Um, as I said, this meeting is being recorded and we will have interpretation. Both of them, both of those will be up on YouTube and on our website for, for people to, to see afterwards. And, and I did see that Council District 7 is here, Joel and Clark's office. He unfortunately is unable to attend because of the holiday. Tonight was the city council meeting that he will be attending. We do have, have his office here representing and again, just thanking them because they've been really strong advocates, not only for parks itself, but this park in particular, they've been working really hard on. So we just wanna recognize them and thank them for all the work that they've been doing on Ruby Hill. Um, with that, I will turn it over to Sarah with Design Workshop um, so we can start the, the meeting and go over the interpretation and what the meeting will look like. Or actually, let me pass it to Lloyd. Lloyd, if you'd like to unmute yourself just to explain how interpretation will work. Okay. Uh, mi nombre es Flor. Uh, vamos a hacer la interpretación. Y queremos que para español, por favor, seleccione el botón de interpretación que está en la parte inferior de su pantalla. Okay. All right, Jesus, are we good to uh, go to the next slide? Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Bonaquist. Uh, I am the project manager from Design Workshop. We're a landscape architecture firm. We 